0: Hello, and welcome to the Lavender Menace podcast. This is episode one of season four. Everyone cheered. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> we have a great season planned ahead for you. And yeah. today we will be discussing season two of Russian Doll. And if you haven't heard our Russian Doll review for season one, you should go check it out. And. Yes. Yeah, anyways, my name is Sunny, I use they them pronouns, I'm a booktuber, you can find me on YouTube at a Sunny Book Nook, as well as anywhere else, and <laughs> I am not only overly online, but also very pretty, so many people could not <laughs> say the same.
1: Which is important for the audio medium that we use here for our podcast, to
0: just clarify. Exactly, exactly. Oh, In unless the listener's you're- eye. Unless you're a patron, because then you'll be seeing this as a video episode if you want, if you so choose. Anyway, Renaissance, yes. who are you? Well
1: I'm also pretty, um, and right. online. Right. Hello, my <laughs> name is Renaissance. I'm the other co-host of The Lavender Menace. And I I have the same birthday as Nadia Volvikov of the Russian doll franchise series. Mm. It is confirmed. It is not the canon of the show. March 30th, it's the truth. Exactly. Aries. Exactly. Aries children. Because you're both um,
0: Aries with mm-hmm. long curly hair.
1: And insane mothers. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> and <laughs> generational and, trauma. Yeah. No. <laughs> and multi
1: generational complicated mother-daughter relationships that yeah. would warp space and time. So, but I'm you know, the chain smoker, two- so... Yeah, just two quirky things that I have in common with Nadia. Yeah. But yeah. But before we get into talking about Russian Doll For Real For Real, we have some hot takes uh, to go over. The first one being an email from listener Ren, pronouns they, them. Dear Sunny and Renaissance, First of all, I hope y'all enjoying my favorite holiday ever, 420, and are celebrating. And we did celebrate, and that is also evident on our Patreon, so you should join our Patreon. <laughs> yeah, we have a special episode, episode
0: in which we get high and talk about the origin story of us, and also mm-hmm. food, I don't know, we, we were <laughs> so like, food. we were off our shit <laughs> <laughs> like. A lot of food talk. It was a fun, it was a fun episode though. Back into the email.
1: Thank you guys for your podcast and all the content you make. As a fellow non-binary lesbian communist Swifty, truly a minority of the world, (laughs) but highly important, very important Uh to society, I truly cannot put into words how much I adore this podcast. Y'all are my favorite micro-celebrities and I hope (laughs) you never stop the podcast. Are we micro-celebrities? I feel like you are. (laughs) <laughs> but you n- definitely are not, not out of if. my own will to be <laughs> quite honest not, <laughs> not it's it's Forced upon you, the micro-celebrity <laughs> status. Not to be TMI, but I found this podcast when I moved from university and didn't have any friends. So I would binge listen to the podcast, and it genuinely improved my life 100%. No, that
0: listen, because so this is so sweet. real. This is real Yeah, F. Like, why? Like, that's
1: literally me and Sunny. Why do you think <laughs> we make, Do you think Sunny and I made this because we had so many friends we just had <coughs> hundreds of friends that we were hanging out with all the time and that's what sparked the, in- and that's the, the inspiration thing. for this you
0: cannot be an internet quote unquote niche micro celebrity and now be a fucking loser <laughs> you can't like you can't be on the internet <laughs> no, and not be true. a loser come on now like <laughs> the internet is for losers anyways
1: also i'm glad that this podcast improved your life because its impact on mine studies are still being (laughs) done studies
0: are still being considered like we yeah 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 yeah.
1: there's a couple thesci theses out Mm -hmm. we don't know exactly what conclusion we're gonna get anyway my Ren's hot take is revolving around these two screenshots i found online i know y'all briefly mentioned harry styles before and how he is always seen as a queer icon but i must disagree
0: We also
1: disagree. His outfits are so bad. If he's going to claim to break gender binaries, can he at least try to dress well? The Dorothy costume haunts me. (laughs) I just hate Harry Styles and all his fans and how they claim he is queer but not Taylor. Hashtag misogyny. This is why bisexuals go crazy for this man and then proceed to tell me 11 time Grammy nominee, singer, songwriter, creator of Evermore is not queer. Thank you for using her government name for this. <laughs> right. I hate how they glorify him and claim he is the new David Bowie or but when in fact he is a sad white boy who doesn't even write his own music. Ooh, no, Shot's fired. <laughs> anyway, hope these screenshots make you laugh. Heart, hope you enjoy your 420. Sincerely, Ren. Thank you, Ren. Yes. And now I will read the uh, screenshots for people to know what we will be replying to. So the first screenshot is by at Hailer's Crumbs or Daily haler which wow, what there's so much <laughs> to with that, and it's not even the content provided. But, anyways, people in the quote retweets are mad, but at the end of the day, Harry's impact on the liberation of the LGBTQIA community. <laughs> cannot be denied and I would argue that it can be denied actually and it
0: should be denied
1: (laughs) morally it should be denied and then in that tweet they attached a photo of top 10 people mentioned with hashtag pride on social media number one being Harry Styles okay sorry I had to swallow back the vomit that just came up to me
0: (laughs) number two being Marsha P. Johnson like what is going on Okay. What is three, Alice Society Austin. is disin- disintegrating.
1: Oh yeah, before very eyes. Four Taylor Swift though, and five yeah. Kristen Stewart. Which I would argue that Taylor Swift might be gayer than Kristen Stewart.
0: That's a, that's a hot take <laughs> for six, another day. That's my Bella hot take. Hadid. Yeah, that's a no ass real. girl. Like please. No, like
1: those that three lineup: Taylor Swift, Kristen Stewart, Bella Hadid.
0: Yeah, <laughs> correct.
1: <laughs> they, they should be there. They should be there. Uh. Louis Tomlinson, which why? (laughs) Larry, no. Well, I know, but like, of current day, no. And then why so? Oh, Lady Gaga number nine. She should be higher. And then ten is Sylvia Rivera. Even though Marsha P. Johnson is number two, like, yeah, right. Okay, something's not right. The second screenshot is a screenshot of a TikTok the the cursed place of this podcast god screenshot of harry styles holding a bi flag and then the text over it for the tiktok says this man literally headlined a homophobic festival franchise picked up a bi flag and went (laughs) fuck you i will not stand for your morals (laughs) and i will bring mine here i love him so much for this
0: this is like a parody of a tumblr post
1: you know what i mean yeah, no, like, this is, like, someone uh, submitting for a Strange Eons video, but, like, not getting <laughs> <laughs> right. Just, like, submitting. Right. Uh, let's eat. Let's get into this, shall we? <laughs> let's, let' unfold our napkins. Unpack this, right. Knife and fork. Let's get into this.
0: Oh, my fucking God. The fucking, okay, the cotella discourse. Well, first of all, <laughs> like... Mm-hmm. N- Renaissance has has had many complaints about Coachella yeah. recently Yeah. that they yeah. have disclosed to Sonny. Me. Yeah. Um, and I think that the Harry Styles headlining it thing is what makes it especially cursed this year. It's always mm-hmm. not great, but the fact that mm-hmm. people are acting like this is some civil rights movement thing that like he is bringing about into the world, mm-hmm. it, it's like... Girl, Coachella did not blink. Like, this, they don't give a fuck. They literally don't care. Ugh, rainbow capitalism. It's so sick. It's so sick. Like, okay, they're calling it a,
1: (laughs) the phrase homophobic festival franchise, that to me is very funny, but (laughs) they're calling it that because the company that runs Coachella, Golden Voice, I think, they run Coachella and Stagecoach. Did donate to, like, the Trump campaign or whatever and, like, other, like, fucking Kellogg or whatever, which, like, does, like, conversion camps or whatever or, like, cup yeah. in ties. But the thing is, is that Golden Voice is fucking huge. Like, like companies are not good. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have yeah. morals. Like, that, that doesn't make Coachella and every single person who goes to Coachella a bad, bad, bad person. Like... Right. I mean, there are terrible people yeah. who go to Coachella, but that's right. frankly unrelated.
0: <laughs> yeah. To like, you guys will be like, oh, the I'm action. this franchise, this corporation does not have my best interests at heart. They don't have any. No, girls. exactly. This sucks. It's like, re- oh, really?
1: Like, right. And like, also, like, it's not that Golden Voice doesn't know that a lot of gay people go to Coachella. Like, they know. It's not like there's guards at the gate of the festival being are like, taking are taking you your bank? money. You're not allowed in. The exactly. whole
0: point is to make money. It's a profit enterprise. And at the end of the day, sometimes people will... Sometimes companies will market more explicitly while being being like... I mean, because when Beyonce headlined, it was like, oh, the first black mm-hmm. woman to mm-hmm. headline the festival, a major festival like this. It's like... And, and it's played Yeah, exactly. Versus... And that was versus part of the Harry Styles campaign. not slay. Like, yeah. Like first of all, he's not serving. And second of all, like, this whole thing, y'all are imposing it onto him. You guys are imposing mm-hmm. it onto this idea of the festival. When these people don't like this corporation does not give a fuck about Harry Styles or you. It's a you are a consumer and he is part of the product they're selling. They don't really give a fuck mm-hmm. about You know, like it's capitalism, babes. It's capitalism.
1: And also, you know, picking up a buy flag and saying "what fuck you" to Golden Face or whatever—he's still getting paid by that. And also, that that doesn't change. Picking up
0: a buy flag while performing in your uh, performance—no tables were moved. No one moved.
1: Not an inch. There was a breeze in the room. Not even a rattle. (laughs) Not even a shaky leg, an uneven leg to rock it a little bit. It was sturdy, it was perpendicular to the floor, and it it didn't budge. I fear. Right. Right. It actually may have even cemented further in place because of this. Like,
0: like this is the lamest shit ever. What the fuck? It might have been the strongest
1: table I've ever seen with my own two eyes. Like, it's just also. It starts with this man literally line headlined a homophobic festival franchise, whatever. Right. If 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 that is the biggest affront to these people, the, the actions, the capitalistic actions of Golden Voice, wouldn't they be more like? Wouldn't they readily criticize Harry Styles for headlining something that they right. detest? So much. It doesn't
0: make sense. Like, you... Rather will... than just
1: picking up a flag, which, like... Right.
0: Like, you isn't... don't have morals here.
1: It's not... Yeah. That's what's going on. Like... Like, immediately blinded. Immediately mm-hmm. he is absolved of criticism or whatever. It's also
0: just a means of... The way that the internet has taken identity into something that can be sold and bought via social capital, essentially, and people's attention has permanently changed your brain chemistry, I think. Mm -hmm. Because now you will impose this shit onto meaningless things because you have imbued it with a meaning that it otherwise, that that fundamentally in the thing itself does not have. It's quite disgusting to see, to be quite honest. Like, I'm like... uh, I'm Katara gagged,
1: not but in that one. A way. local dike bar. You know? Like yeah. it's not Okay. To go to the first screenshot of Harry Style's impact on the liberation guys, we're liberated right. of the LGBTQIA community cannot be denied.
0: We're Honey, denying. Would it. you dare to den- <laughs> <laughs> Would you dare to deny the impact of Harry? Yes. In the court of like, law,
1: on oath, would you deny Harry's impact to the liberation?
0: Every single time, bitch. Like what the fuck? <laughs> Hand it's, on the Bible. Like,
1: for the people who believe that that Harry Styles is the second coming, what has he done?
0: Right. Quickly. <laughs> like wave a bye flag in his performances, girl.
1: And, and wear what the about The ugliest it? clothes I've ever right. seen. Exactly. Like, is he not, that's not a liberating multi, multi millionaire? His music is mid. Is it? Is uh, Well, yes. I mean, do I stream from time to time? Yes, I am in my one direction re listening phase. Everyone look away. But that's because when, when a pop album is even. Okay, I'm not even going to get into this. None of the listeners are fighting me on this. I don't know why I'm trying to be defensive. No one is fighting me. Anyway, Harry Styles. What has he done? What does he say that he's done? What? Like, okay. Not to quote you guys are our This Mendens is our Sean episode. Right. But like, do I think that Harry Styles has sucked dick? Yes. Do I think that he's <laughs> the liberator of queer people? No. No. Like, just because... Just because someone happens to be an, queer doesn't mean that yeah. they make
0: queer art, good art, contribution to society... Or
1: Meaningful things,
0: right? Like or any sort of c- contribution to liberation. What the mm-hmm. fuck do you think liberation is? Define liberation.
1: What? And the fact that he's above Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera is at the bottom. Who's scared? Like, like
0: I'm terrified for this generation.
1: And you're using the language of liberation of community.
0: Do we what see community? how? Y'all are internet
1: stands. Like what it's community not showing? And like to be fair, listen. I like he is a good mm, good is subjective. He is a <laughs> a big pop cultural icon like Mm -hmm. if you like Harry because you like pop music even if it's not necessarily groundbreaking or meaningful like that's why I re-listen to my two favorite One Direction albums not because I think their lyricism is good or because I think the storytelling is good it's just like the best part of pop like literally put in a blender and manufactured and out and it's a it's a pop bop Continually, like the album because it follows that formula. Come on, but it's it's very f- formulaic, and so if you like Harry Styles because he runs across the stage and is eccentric and high energy, and you think his shows are entertaining or whatever, or you think that the music that he puts out is enjoyable to listen to, that's fine. Whatever. Like I, I'm a pop music enjoyer. I'm not going to fight you on that. Saying yeah. that he is really so, like solidly contributing to right queer communities anywhere in any way let alone to the liberation and having impact on it
0: mm-hmm.
1: that must be denied i feel that's fear. very I'm like, embarrassing what? for you to say and make that to say right it's, it's gonna be a no from me personally <laughs> <laughs> um I hope everyone else, you know, stay safe. And I think that, like, also calling Harry, like, this gay queer icon and so many people not respecting Taylor Swift for being out is, I think, is also a a touch of the misogyny, which we've talked about before.
0: It's tied together for people to think that this person who is... Hasn't said anything. Well, okay, yeah, that. But also, Harry Styles has never said anything about his sexuality explicitly. Has he, right? On a public mm-hmm. platform, has mm-hmm. he ever been like, No. Guys, I'm bisexual? He's done like, I'm unlabeled. I think, right. think was like then, the thing that he said. And people ran, ran with Ran with that. And he'll carry the bisexual pride flag on stage. So on a visual cue level, okay, we get it. We get up, dude. But when Taylor Swift wears... Her bi wig, and when Taylor Swift has mm-hmm. all the lesbian colors on her, pla- and when the t- when Taylor Swift uses bisexual lighting, and, and the lesbian dress, and the me out now, and the gay dress, day, the Pride flag Ivy. dress, the the Pride flag pin on the like mm-hmm. the Pride themed like concepts around an entire album guys and and it's it's not giving homosexual Boys and boys to you. and girls and girls right like it's explicit it's textual and it's on it's hitting all the cues that hairstyles styles is hitting and more like much more way more you know and
1: better because she writes her own, her own own words shit. <laughs> exactly. exactly she is the gay girl and she's the one writing the gay girl material. Right. And frankly, a lot of your faves cannot say the same. Right. On right, a right. simple level, on a simple question, a lot of your faves
0: cannot say the same. Right. Anyways, the next hot take we have here is another email from Drew, a non-binary lesbian who uses they them. My hot take is about the new romance book, Delilah Green Doesn't Care about Ashley Herring Blake. Not sure if it's a hot take, but I thought I'd give my two <laughs> cents. I thought it was a pretty standard and decent romance novel. And in my words, Sonny's, in Sonny's opinion, yeah, I liked it too. I recommended it on the podcast, actually. It was one of the media recommendations uh, from last season. However, I have a problem with the author, especially her use, or lack thereof, of the word lesbian in her books. I've read quite a few of her books over the years, and whenever she has a lesbian character, she never refers to them as a lesbian. She'll use things like gay, queer, into girls, etc. to avoid lesbian like it's a bad word, which I find incredibly frustrating. I think this is the first book of hers that actually has a lesbian character herself call herself a lesbian, and it's in a sarcastic comment. I'm the butch lesbian goddess of your dreams or something like that, which is sarcastic, joking, throwaway comment. Emphasis on the sarcasm because Delilah isn't even butch, LMAO. I know it may seem small, but it really does bother me. She's not the only author who does this. It's a recurring issue in most sapphic books written by non-lesbians, but I find it so frustrating that I can't even enjoy books that do this. I understand in some stories it makes sense to not use the word lesbian, such as historical or high fantasy or something like that, but in a contemporary romance where the bisexual characters get to call themselves bisexual, it feels intentional to not use the word lesbian. I literally once read a book, not by Ashley, not by Ashley Herring Blake, by the way, where the main character says she was bisexual and the lesbian love interest said this, me too, with the liking girls and boys. Well, not boys. Damn, I wish there was a word for a bisexual (laughs) woman who only likes women. So, TLDR, I'm tired of authors dancing around the word lesbian like it's a slur and instead describing their lesbian characters with language that is applicable to people who also like men, such as queer, into girls, etc. Like, what's up with this? And what do you guys think? Anyway, I love the podcast. Thank you both for your service. Thank you so much, Drew, for your Mm -hmm. submission. And yeah, I have read a couple Ashley herring Blake books and she identifies as bisexual. And I think this furthers our thesis of the podcast (laughs) that is the only cis white millennial bisexual woman who is valid is Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. Like everyone else, like, (laughs) y'all can go. Have not made the cut. Right. I think Delilah Green isn't Care is a solid romance novel, and that's why I recommended it. It feels very, like, Gilmore Girls-type rom-com vibes, but I did also Mm -hmm. notice that the word bisexual was used Have you seen Gilmore Girls? Yeah, like, the first few seasons, in middle school.
1: Oh, okay. Okay.
0: I I understand the cultural context. It's one of the few things I do.
1: No, I know, that's why I was so impressed. I thought it was going to be one of the things (laughs) we just heard other people, and so then you use it, and so I just wanted to... Well, actually, in
0: in the bookstore today, I was was in a bookstore and it's like one of the indie stores that has little, they'll put little placards in front of some of the books being like, oh, this bookseller recommends this book. And on Mm -hmm. the placard, one of the booksellers had wrote the note that this book is similar to like Gilmore Girls. And I was like, no, that's true. So because it's like a small town vibe, like, you know, you Mm -hmm. meet up with your. So anyways, basically, I'm familiar (laughs) with Gilmore Girls. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Anyways, not to call her out specifically, um, because Mm -hmm. a lot of people do this. But yeah, I think it is an interesting cultural phenomenon that honestly probably also has to do with the fact that lesbian is so sexualized because it's a porn category, essentially. Um, And that's how a lot of people are familiar with that term in the first place, is in the context of like porn, because we are in a society that is inundated with internet porn. So that's like a huge thing, I think. And because people want to move away, I've heard people describe themselves as queer instead of like a lesbian, because they don't want to use the term that's so heavily sexualized. But I think it seeped into the cultural consciousness in which it's easier for people to say the word queer than to say lesbian which is so bizarre because lesbian itself is just a yeah term it doesn't have any value statement behind it as an actual word well it does mean that you're hot word. slay right yeah but queer is literally a slur like that no, but, is why say, people say the word so queer. Funny. that has been reclaimed because it in the 19th and 20th century, just, and before that, in the English language, it just meant weird or, like, bizarre. And then people would mm-hmm. use it to describe weird and bizarre people, aka homosexuals. So, yeah. and, like, we have reclaimed it as an umbrella term, and some people don't like it, but, you know, it's, be it's, it is the Cultural it is. consciousness yeah, in such a way. You can't avoid it but lesbian why 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 the gatekeeping around the usage of that word hmm i think a lot of y'all hate women to be honest i think a lot of y'all are lesbophobic mm-hmm. even if you are seemingly liberal or like accepting of all lgbt people or you think of yourself as an ally to lesbians or you are yourself sapphic it's like you at the end of the day you don't actually think of lesbians as like real i feel like use of like lesbian versus having a character like
1: say that they're bisexual but then not having a character say that they are a lesbian like cases where there's that direct contrast I think is really interesting and shows the aversion non-lesbians have to the word lesbian and sometimes even other lesbians don't like the word lesbian they prefer to call themselves gay or sapphic or queer even if they're lesbian. <laughs> there's, no, right. there's no way around it. They are not a man who does not like men in, in a way that one might say is very lesbian. Right. And that, that contrast, I think, is really interesting because it also, even if you have a character who is explicitly lesbian, by not having them actually use that language, it allows for the possibility of that
0: character to not
1: be a lesbian.
0: Right. Which, people can interpret it in a more vague manner. Yeah. people do. And... A lot. They do. And it's really and fucking I think annoying.
1: Yes. And especially with the complicated relationship that lesbians can have with their sexuality or their dating history or even marriage history or marriages and still being lesbian and grappling with that, like, when... If you have a kind of canonical dating history of a character, and then the character also turns out to be lesbian or is characterized as a lesbian, but that language is never used, then character interpretations, literary interpretations, media analysis of these characters can leave leave room for ambiguity that otherwise would not be there if people felt more comfortable with the word lesbian and like growing up as a kid just like in general with my history of the word lesbian like one of the reasons why it took me so long to realize that I was a lesbian and why I was still in my bi era was like I didn't like the way that people used the word lesbian like I didn't like the way that it I thought I didn't like the way that it sounded like it just it culturally is a loaded word like Sunny said like it's an it's a non value word, like it's just a descriptor word. But that's not that's not how people treat it. That's not how people use it. People people whisper it. There's hesitation before yeah. people say it. Like you're you're a um, a a a, le- a lesbian. <laughs> like they don't want yeah. to say it. And then it's only when I realized that I was a lesbian and I started using it for myself that then I fell in love with the word. But for non-lesbian who are like actually non-lesbians, like, not people who just haven't figured it out yet. Or, like, bi, like, you don't have that process, I guess, of falling in love or re-falling
0: in love with the word. Yeah, and so you never then, have to come to terms with that actual identity unless yeah like, you are using it in a derogatory or offhanded or joking manner because that's the only way that you've been exposed to it in your own life and you never had mm-hmm. to really take it seriously. Mostly because a lot of people, like, don't, don't take
1: lesbians seriously,
0: and also don't meet like out lesbians in their day to day lives in a way that is really meaningful. Especially now, like way more people mm-hmm. are gonna are gonna know like ten bisexual people than like one lesbian. You know? Yeah, it's so, a sad reality. Boo! It,
1: it is the sad reality, and like this happens a lot in film as well, which I'm
0: more There was Killing with. Eve discourse over this, remember? Uh, there's Killing Eve discourse over everything. Uh, yes. Over
1: everything all of the time.
0: <laughs> I mean, particularly with the usage of the, the non-usage of the word lesbian or these, like the way that people are describing certain characters. It's like, girl, okay. Probably. <laughs> well, it was like a big thing. I remember the first
1: time I ever heard of this discourse was when Orange the New Black was airing and the main piper people were calling piper a lesbian and then people were like no you shouldn't call piper a lesbian and people were also saying like oh why do all the other characters get to like be lesbians but then piper has never said the word bisexual or something like that and all up in arms about the lack of bisexual representation (laughs) in tv and film and, frankly, right. I'd argue there's too much bisexual representation in <laughs> TV and film currently, right, right, but <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. And that's a joke for any people who try and try and screen record that clip and, and in case it canceled in the future. That was a joke, by the way, right. clarifying right, right, right. it now in the text. Again, it's when there's contrast. If you have characters that all say that they're, oh, that's a, a gay guy, bisexual, bisexual girl, bisexual guy, Non-binary character, and then you just have this very clearly lesbian character, characters who uh, all all the clues are there, but then just somehow the word never comes up in conversation. It's a little sus. Personally. I've never met a lesbian who that's not maybe between the third and fifth word that comes out of their mouth. What do you mean? <laughs> if you meet me, you will know that I'm a lesbian. Like, right. I'll have something with the flag on it. I'll bring it up. I'll mention it. But all these characters somehow never seem to use the word. A little right. silly.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we live in a deeply lesbophobic society, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It has to do with misogyny. It has to do with the fact that people are just obsessed with the idea that, there are not actually women who don't like men mm-hmm. they just don't like that idea and it's like well, okay. people
1: are okay well people have always been okay with the idea that possibly like girls or women prefer the company of other women that's why women are allowed to be emotional best friends and have the close friendships that we can have that like mm-hmm. to a degree are accepted in society what is not okay is to not I center men to not be attracted to men, to yeah. not potentially love men. Once that door is closed, that's what really yeah ki- kicks off a different a different reaction,
0: a different behavior, a different outlook. Exactly, and it's structural and not interpersonal necessarily. But and because it's structural, we see it occur on in in so much like sapphic shit. There's there's so many characters that identify and are widely identified as bisexual and then there's so few who call themselves what they are as lesbian Mm -hmm. it's it's sad but you know we are single-handed the
1: people who watch jennifer's body and think jennifer is a lesbian and then there Mm -hmm. are bisexual canon jennifer's body watches
0: but see we are single-handedly bringing back the media tradition of lesbian. saying the word lesbian constantly yeah and identifying by saying
1: as it a lesbian. three thousand times in an episode
0: exactly so and just, we are actually the forefront of the queer liberation movement
1: w- uh, and not hairstyles the lavender <laughs> menace sunny renaissance th- those better be the top three spots on that <laughs> on that infographic <laughs> hashtag pride hashtag the lavender menace need exactly. to see it I call people a lesbian even if they don't know that they're lesbian. I just be sprinkling that word like garnish. If I see something and I like
0: it, it's lesbian. It's lesbian. Like, and what are you gonna do about it? Don't be. And who's gonna show me? Don't be homophobic. No, literally, you're gonna tell me that it's not. You're gonna
1: say you're not because evidence proves otherwise. So, on to the next (laughs) hot take. I want to preface this by telling you I'm a 17 year old non-binary lesbian white, living in Northern Europe in a very queer-friendly country. It might be very important to bear that in mind when I talk about my experiences and observations. I run into so much queer, quote-unquote, discourse, petty teenage arguing on social media about issues with no real-life consequences. <laughs> we are a little Hashtag familiar rail. with that. Are we? I've actually never seen that in my yeah, life. Yeah, what are you talking um, about? I actually just joined the internet the other day. I right. have so... I run into so much queer discourse on my feed on my feeds that it's so annoying and wrong that it got me reflecting on how the online LGBTQ community that I interact with slash am subjected to has in many ways been reduced to fandom or subculture. I take a lot of issue with this because all the infighting and mainstream quote-unquote activism like at Pride is so meaningless without a purpose. We still collectively talk... About it as if it's a special club you're accepted into due to some intrinsic trait. Part of the problem, in my very humble opinion, is that the majority is not public. Oh, is not politically informed. How can we fight for liberation if people have zero knowledge about the history of gender and how it operates as a system today? And if the generally accepted explanation of gender versus sex is the very watered down Tumblr-esque explanation quote, gender is a social construct, and what's in your brain, and what you feel like, and sex is biological, wink emoji, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, with these surface level takes not only being incorrect, but also making it ridiculously easy for people to disregard us as irrational and afactual, and also making a lot of gay people to become literal transmedicalists, transphobes and TERFs, Yeah. And mm. it's also completely undermines non-binary identity, redu- reducing it to a feeling and a quote-unquote third gender, not an inherently political reduction of gender that it is. Sex should be understood as a social construct and a spectrum. What the hell is the point of this little club if we can't unite in politics? This, nation that any- oh, this notion that anyone who's queer is a part of the community, regardless of political alignment, is wild to me. Queer Nazis, obviously, queer conservatives, queer oh anti-black queers, queer liberals, queer pro-capitalists, TERFs, and any anti-trans, gays, etc. should not be tolerated and accepted as one of us in any way because ultimately they're working against our cause. We should emphasize that we as a community are very political to avoid things like cops at pride, brands dropping pride collections, brands going to pride, and all that cringe stuff liberation not assimilation. We need a broad sense of political unity. Our online community is global and diverse. IRL LGBT communities should be focusing on creating spaces, spaces for queer people to connect and support each other, helping the most marginalized groups within our communities building safety nets for young people at risk, making changes within our own countries, and the online community should be, at least partially, concentrating on educating and making theory accessible. That's my hot take. I love you guys. Sometimes I listen to the podcast without actually processing what you're saying. I'm just content hearing two beautiful, incredible lesbians say correct, intelligent, funny lesbian words into my ears as I go about my day. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you very much, Anonymous. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, but I mean, no. a great email, first yes. off. Congratulations. Exactly. Congrats, congrats. No, I think, it's like, this is the thing. The reason why people reclaimed the word queer on a social and interpersonal level is because queer as an identity only has meaning because it is oppositional to the state And thus the social structure that the state reinforces, legislates, creates, um, polices. Like that's why there is a quote unquote queer community and LGBTs not being tapped into the inherently oppositional nature of, their identities and or not understanding it in a correct way is similar i think to not having like class consciousness or racial consciousness or gendered Mm -hmm. consciousness in any particular in on any level of identity because it individualizes your experience as opposed to tying it to the broader reality that many people experience and undergo because if you think of yourself as I am this one person who is unconnected to, or like, because there are people who are like, who don't want to be seen as a part of a group or a community because of like individualism, but that's the thing. You can't feed into individualism if your identity and your existence is inherently political, and everyone's existence is inherently political. There are political implications mm-hmm. because we live as soon as you're born, like, it's unavoidable. So you uh, you either reject it and in doing so, cause more harm and contribute to the reality of the world, or in embracing it, you don't, you might not understand it fully, but still talk about your experiences as if they are universal. You know, like it, it can go mm-hmm. in a lot of directions, which is why having a strict political line And having a really grounded basis of an understanding of what actually ties us together, being what ties us together, as opposed to your own feelings towards something and yourself. Of course, it's going to relate to how we relate to each other. But that's not really what any of this shit is about, is it? Like, I am not Chinese because I feel Chinese. I just am. Like, you're not- Wait, what? I'm kidding. Right, like, you're not one race or the other. Yeah, a lot of Mm -hmm. white people don't feel white, but they are. Like, you don't, just because you don't, like, guys, these feelings are a reaction. to. Right, 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 right. (laughs) These feelings are a reaction to our world around us. So if you feel queer, yeah, that's a reaction to the world around you. And because you're Mm -hmm. engaging with the world in such a way, shouldn't you think of yourself as a part of a collective that has a political opposition to the current standards and structure of the world come sunny. on now
1: you know but sunny what about the community of other gay capitalists don't they <laughs> deserve community as well you don't need
0: community when when you're rich what about
1: white twink solidarity
0: something about living in a capitalistic society that is really sick and twisted is that there's no even if you are, everyone's just struggling to survive, ultimately, unless you are the owner of capital. But when you do own capital, and when you are rich, and when you are at that level of power, you're fundamentally disconnected from everyone else. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of rich people are not very happy. I wonder why. It's almost like it's miserable to live in this society. I, I, period.
1: It's hell out there. Exactly.
0: And even if you on a material level benefit from all of the oppressive systems and exploitative structures in the world, why do you still feel like this? Why? Because of this isolation and individualism bullshit that makes you think of yourself as someone who doesn't owe other people community or support or solidarity because when you're a capitalist and you're gay you're there to benefit yourself you're trying to make money for yourself like you're Mm -hmm. and it always comes at the backs of other people it's you are choosing to exploit other people you're choosing to take other people's money for your own benefit how is that like liberatory you know but how that how does that connect you to other to other people who are actually struggling under the boot heel of these systems of oppression when you're working in tandem with said systems of oppression it doesn't mm-hmm. make sense
1: one part that of the email that stood out to me was online lgbtq community general has been like reduced to fandom or subculture which like true but also i think the internet has changed the way that queer people interact with media because you don't actually have to go anywhere and because it is like online fandom and online subculture, like the queer community essentially is subculture. It will never be the norm in mainstream. It's trying very hard, RuPaul's Drag Race and its 1000 (laughs) spinoffs,
0: but like- Queer Eye,
1: right. Exactly, but even then, those are- gay things for straight people. And you can tell that by the early seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. People used to have to go to the movie theater to see the movies that the gay people were seeing. You used to have to go to the theater. To the you bar. To, you to the drag to, show. To, to the, the bar. Come on now. Like you used to have to go to the ballroom scenes to be in the place where these people were. And now you can just watch Killing Eve on Hulu and tweet about it until your thumbs bleed. Like it's just not the same. So yeah. like having like these kind of pockets of media and culture that kind of collect a bunch of gay people. Like Twitter is not a Judy Garland special, you know, in the mm-hmm. same way where there used to be a lot of gay people together. And that's how that's how just regular human interaction, human relationships are developed. You have to meet people. You have to go to places and Mm -hmm. meet with like-minded people. And for one reason or another, that obviously has slowed. But then you have people who are not interacting with IRL gay people, but are in these spaces, like online spaces, where there are a lot of gay people and are talking to each other, but not having, like Sunny said, consciousness on other levels to even think about how their takes, or what they think their perspective on queerness is, et cetera, et cetera, actually relates to the material world, actually relates to the people around them. They don't take the time to consider what their own motivations are, their self-interest. Are they actually centering community? Are they using the cop-out of, well, I'm gay, and I'm making money, therefore this is good for the gay community, without actually uh, challenging, like, capitalistic thinking or motivations or like things like a a gay CEO is not making money for the queer community just because they are a gay person who has a lot of money like that is not that's not upping the material conditions for gay people at large so that's not adding to the liberation like whether or not Harry Styles is pan gay whatever his money his his Empire, Harry Styles LLC, is not actually doing anything for the queer community. Killing Eve, as entertaining as it is, as feral as it makes people, it's not like liberating us and we are not going to places to talk about this in a meaningful way, in a way that actually builds community relationships and then those actual community relationships go on to build collectives and political queer spaces. So with the kind of more public view of queer culture in these really sanitized ways like drag
0: race and Queer Eye. Like the actual pride parades and what that looks like now. Pride
1: parades and shit, what was I saying? How did I start it? Oh, like with these things being more public, it doesn't actually like encourage anyone to think of themselves as- Well, no, as as in opposition to oh, like right. the state, the mainstream, like,
0: because it is mainstream yeah. now. So you're not exactly. being anti-mainstream; you're part of the mainstream. And in some ways, mm-hmm. yeah, that's cool. It's it's it, it's the same line of thinking and logic for that of the reasons why we oppose like girl boss feminism, or you know, like what yeah. Fred Hampton was saying, like like we don't want black capitalism; like we want socialism. Mm-hmm. You don't want like that's. It's, it's always it's been, been exactly like this. The same. People have always because been saying this. Women have uh, women were yeah. not thinking we don't want to do this this housewife shit. We want to actually participate in society. People were not but they were not begging to be exploited by capitalists or begging to be a capitalist themselves. People just wanted mm-hmm. to be liberated from the reality of the oppressive structures of womanhood right Mm like sit and it's but the thing is is that when people have made those claims for the queer for the queer community people were like we don't want to be marginalized in such a manner and part of the way that marginalization functions is by pushing us into invisibility so we want to be visible in such a way in which it's unavoidable we have to deal with queerness in a in a public-facing manner but now that that has happened, the same way that now that, like, women participating in the workforce on in, like, white-collar fields and stuff has happened, it creates more social implications and contradictions that you have to resolve. And that's the nature of, of fighting for any liberation of any group. It's fundamentally tied to economic systems. It can't not be. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the economic realities and the class realities and relationships that people have had have really changed over time in terms of queerness and other forms of identity because previously to capitalize on queerness or to capitalize on a marginalized identity was something that was subtextual or not what hinged one's career it wasn't like mm-hmm. oh look at this new icon they are black and bi and blah blah, blah. that's why they're so cool no it's like you were just just cool you just made good like people were just like oh that madonna that's a cool person oh and she happens to be Mm -hmm. a woman like she makes good music she happens to be a woman and she's also a queer icon like it's not you know what i mean like it, it it was actual things first and that created the identity category and it also has to do with the fact that like not, this is still true for a lot of people now, but especially true in the past, in in, in previous centuries of human history, was that part of co- what connected actual, like, you know, like what, what connected queer people, what connected LGBT people was that when you came out or when you were actually living your truth, you became fundamentally disconnected from the community that you grew up in and the money and Mm -hmm. the comfort and the access that you could otherwise have had. So many, I mean, I mean, to this day, that's still true. A lot of people, a lot of kids who are unhoused are homeless because they've been kicked out of the house for being trans, right? Like that's, that's still a thing, but It was like one of those things that if you were going to claim the identity marker of LGBT, you were probably not going to have actual any material support or comfort, you know? Now, that's Mm -hmm. not always true. There is a possibility and, in fact, a, a high likelihood of people who live relatively comfortable lives can come out and still live relatively comfortable lives. Previously, not so. You had to change yourself. Or lose the comfortable life. And that Mm -hmm. created also a sense of class solidarity. And, like, you wouldn't even see that in, like, a TV show like Pose, right? Like, all these people end up living in a house. Like, houses are a thing because none of these people can go back to their family's homes. Like, that's why... That's why you have
1: mothers of the house and their children. It's because their mothers, uh, uh, the mothers who raised them, were... Off, disowned them, kicked them right. out of the house. Like, these are the people, the women, the mothers, who then continued raising them, then continue taking care of them right. In
0: in this way. Yeah, exactly. And that's where this culture has formed. But now, mm-hmm. in the digital media age, people, there's almost a reversal of that, in which you are, you claim the identity marker before you have to ever, like, experience anything that comes with it, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that was... I think, like, yeah, that's just just what was going to happen. If you are presented with the idea of, okay, gay people exist, and this is what they look like, and this is how they act at a younger age, when previously that was never a thing, yeah, you're probably going to be like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, there are gay people that are real, and that exists, and that's true. Whereas previously in our, in the previous generation growing up, like, you could not even acknowledge the existence of queerness because we live in a different, in a different social landscape now, which is why we don't have these communities that emerge from survival. But there is a legacy of communities that emerge from survival that still obviously have pop cultural impacts. But it's one of those things that, like, I think about a lot in terms of the culture, like, creates, the, and and informs the way that people, media and culture inform the way that people act and interact with each other, which then informs media and culture, right? Like that's the basic base and superstructure Marxist understandings of, of shit. But like, it's just like these words and these labels and these identities are only meaningful because of the experiences that people collectively have had to experience that made that word what it is. And so when you experience one element of that collective experience, and when you are the thing that this label describes, you should honor the fact that there is a community there and there is a history there. And there is something that despite this being an innate part of your identity, you also need to learn about. I think that's true for anyone who has strong ties to their identity. As people we are connected to every other person but we are particularly Mm -hmm. connected to people who face and experience shit that we also face and experience. So you should probably learn about (laughs) what ties you to these people and uh, the, the thing that ultimately ties you together which is the social category that is imposed via, like, society, you know? It's not just an individual thing. If, if all of this was an individual thing, none of us would have to call ourselves anything. You would just be who you are. But the thing is, is that we live in a world in which that's not the way things are. Like, there is a default. There is mm-hmm. a constructed idea of how things are and should be. And when you deviate from that, you should probably learn about why things are constructed in such a way, how it oppresses you, how oppr- it oppresses people who are not you, and how that there's actually solidarity there with other people who are oppressed in ways that maybe you are not, but that your oppression is inherently tied to.
1: I agree. And I think that also touches on how, like, the non binary identity has been flattened and been created into this third gender, which we both have talked about how we are not. <laughs> for that necessarily quite the opposite in that like being non-binary was should be is the rejection of gender not the creation of a third gender that is then just also going to be oppressed by the structures by 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 uh, what already exists by the patriarchy and gender oppression that already exists non-binary people are going to be gendered like that right. that comes with the territory of living one might say right. but the identity and the politic that should come with being non-binary is the fundamental rejection of gender of gendered structures of gender oppression. in this way being non-binary does not absolve you of experiencing gender oppression, and it does not absolve you of being an oppressor in some cases. And that is what thinking and (laughs) self-awareness and community looks like. Because there are non-gay people who are more involved in the community and in solidarity with the gay people of their local town, and there are gay people who are conservative and capitalists and losers and gross, right? Like, which one would I rather have on my team? The straight person who actually knows what the fuck is going on. Like yeah. sometimes it's not yeah. only if you're gay. Sometimes it's not only yeah. if you are non-binary. That doesn't actually absolve you of criticism of or having to think about your own politics or how you relate to other people. It just it should mean that you are a re- you are rejecting these things. Being queer is a rejection of the state of oppression. But with that, with the awareness of that, that then leads to being in opposition of economic structures, because it's all tied together, as we say, right. as Sunny just said, and as we say multiple times on the podcast. For us, like, lesbianism, well, I only know this because, one, we talk and I'll see my TikTok about it, but, like, part of our lesbianism is the rejection of constructed womanhood. Like, that is why I, at least, identify as a non-binary lesbian, and I use lesbian as my gender and sexuality, because it is a rejection of gender and womanhood and the constructions of it in that way that does not mean that how i live my life is not as a black woman (laughs) like i like as long as these structures exist that is how i move about the world that's how i operate that is how i'm i not gonna
0: face transphobia i'm not gonna face like face these things that i don't face but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day my politics are oppositional to the reality of the and like what you're saying about the solidarity that arises between someone who has your class interests at heart versus mm-hmm. people who don't, it reminds me of a piece that uh, a piece that we've, I think you might, we've might've read a part of called punks, Bulldaggers and welfare Queens by Kathy Cohen, which mm-hmm. sort of talks about how the average working class black mother is more queer in that sh- her gender and sexuality is targeted by the state than in your average current day like gay white man you know like because Mm -hmm. the state the actual laws regarding sex reproduction like raising a child the money that everything that goes into raising a child and taking care of yourself it there's more there are way more laws surrounding who gets welfare who is a quote-unquote welfare queen rather than anti-sodomy laws. You know what I mean? And the thing is, is that that's why it's... This shit is tied up with the economic realities of people and the state power that is present. If queerness is a descriptor of the ways that we diverge from and work against and are in opposition to the state and dominant ideology and culture, there are some people who on a material level are going to face more or less oppression based on this shit. In Anonymous's email, they were talking about how the simplistic idea of sex and gender being two separate things. That's mm-hmm. why we encourage reading the gender accelerationist <laughs> manifesto and also yes. like so many so many gender studies people, like people who've been actually studying and writing about gender for for decades, if not centuries, have come to the conclusion that sex is a creation of gendered and gendered systems and patriarchal systems, as opposed to a natural, innate, quote-unquote, biological, objective thing that exists, Mm -hmm. it's something that you, we have observed. Like, people didn't know what chromosomes were until pretty recently, but there like was X
1: XX, X X X Y. Right, like people didn't know what the XY, fuck that was. All that shit. But
0: people knew what a female and a male was. Right, mm-hmm. like so. These things are are changing as we understand more and more about ourselves. And that's how we know that if that tracks now, that of course must have tracked 100 years ago as well. Like this shit, it does not emerge from the natural ways that people exist. Because if that were true, then why would it have to be so heavily policed and embedded in every element of law and society if it was just natural that people are going to be one gender or the other or that people are going to compete for money to survive like if this was the, mm-hmm. how things are naturally supposed to go then why are there so many structures that exist to reproduce it reproduce itself like um but yeah no sex and gender being seen as two different things and gender being seen as like a an aesthetic and emotional reaction to or relationship to sex being an objective biological thing is such bullshit because all of this shit is constructed in the first place. And the only reason why we have feelings towards things is because it's a constructed thing that is directly tied to the reality of who becomes categorized into what groups so that their labor can be exploited in a particular way. And it can determine the way that so this group of people is supposed to interact with another group of people. That's, that's true for any category the slave owners and the slaves the women and the men mm-hmm. the like people who are queer and people who aren't like there, there are these categories are distinct for for a reason but it, that doesn't mean that they are natural and to naturalize them and to essentialize them is at the core of why people like TERFs or whatever are wrong because there's nothing natural and essentially correct about one way of being like a person or another it's all social because people are social. Like it's mm-hmm. anyway. So Umfi Roro made a tweet that I was like, "This is so real and true," and their username is at fugly Betty. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh okay, wait,
1: I think I I follow I follow this person.
0: Right? yes yeah, maybe yeah. I don't know on Twitter. So this person made a tweet that I was like, "This is so true." The decline of religion has not actually killed God. God has simply morphed. Children today are obsessing over their moral piety and ethical righteousness, obsessed with persecution complexes and self martyrdom through their marginalized identities. It's all very evangelical. The internet boogeyman who is telling you that non binary people owe the world androgyny and bisexual women can't date men is essentially your modern day Satan. <laughs> <laughs> like i love that conception because it's so true mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. want to do this religious thing and impose it onto onto the way that people interact with each other and i don't think it's be- I don't think that's natural. I don't think that's just how people interact. But I think because we have all internalized through the external structures around us that there are the good people and the bad people. There is this vague sense of attack uh, on a spiritual realm, and there is a vague sense of of mar- of moral piety and righteousness. And like like Roro is saying, the the persecution complexes and the self martyrdom, like this stuff. Mm-hmm we've all internalized th- this vastly capitalistic and christian notion of like right and wrong, good and bad when and 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 have essentialized it in such a way that it manifests in the ways that people treat their identities and groups of people and how we interact with each other. It's very funny to see play out.
1: Yeah, I I very much agree. I had a little tussle on one of my TikToks because I came for how white, mainly like American atheists, like how they preface that when they interact with non-Christian religious content, or just like their takes on religion at large. And it's like, you're, the lack of belief in god and like the christian god doesn't actually mean that that thought process and those values are not deeply internalized and cultural because religion and culture very tied historically and currently heavily Mm -hmm. tied i wouldn't even be able to tell you what views i have what values i have aren't influenced or direct result by the level of Christianity in the United States, even though I did not grow up going to church every Sunday, and I did not grow up nearly in what a person would consider a very religious household. However, the lessons that I was taught as a kid, the way that my parents treated me, spoke to me, the values and lessons on respect, on treating others, those are very Christian values that are just taught. So then when you take that way of thinking that there is someone either out to get you or a merciful God, a loving God, a God that you should be fearful of, and you replace that God with structures, views of yourself, that you should be fearful of condemnation of a large mass of others, of a very important person. In one way or another, that is still Christianity and cultural Christianity at play and at work, especially when you don't have any context or experiences with any other major religion or any other religion at all, and so your like value system to navigate yeah. the world. Yeah, exactly. So when your atheism or lack of direct religious identity comes from the rejection of being a Christian or identifying as Christian that doesn't actually mean that your value system or your way of thinking about the world or the way that you think punishment or consequence works for your actions. That is still deeply tied to Christianity. And and in my experience, but also just like in the United States, like what, like 70 plus percent of, or more probably higher of the United States is Christian. And that's not including all the people who don't identify as Christian, but, are still culturally, (laughs) fundamentally, navigate the world as Christian.
0: And as younger people in this new generation are more likely to reject the religions of their parents, they take Mm -hmm. on new senses of self and navigating the world that are essentially very similar to religion, whether that Mm -hmm. be committing themselves to the capitalist grind ethic or to this constant self-improvement culture uh, the navigating of s- spaces online through marginalized identities and community like it's all these little like cults it's all these little mm-hmm. groups of people that are accumulating power through each other and through their relationships to each other but because it's so unattached from material it's so unattached from material reality in a digital age this self-martyrdom and victimization and the way that people weaponize marginalized identities against each other, it's become very complicated and stupid and meaningless in a lot of ways, which is why people should become politically educated but even when you say that Mm -hmm. people are oppositional to that right yeah people hate it when we say
1: have you considered reading and actually that's very classist and ableist (laughs) and sexist and homophobic of you yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. people should consider educating themselves from time to time with free online (laughs) accessible pdf files
0: that's very
1: ableist and classist of you
0: Alright, so those are three hot takes for this episode. That's our premiere for this season. I feel like <laughs> it's probably stuff that we've talked about before on the pod, but...
1: Oh, it's nice to refresh. Exactly. And I feel like we've gotten a lot of new listeners, followers, yeah. who may not have been around for the
0: earlier, the route... Round one of going through... <laughs> yeah. At, right, these points, essentially. Or, like, <laughs> the, the what is the route at... Of, uh, of these points. But regardless, mm-hmm. we will also be, again, touching on something that we have talked about on previous season, and previous episodes, which is... Russian, Russian Doll. Doll! So, <laughs> yeah, season two oh, came out cheered. within the last, like, couple weeks when you're listening to this. And mm-hmm. we loved season one a lot. Okay, Loved season one. We thought it was so brilliant. And season mm-hmm. two, we also think, is... Brilliant. So fucking good. Yeah. So, so fucking good. Like,
1: I really hope that this is. I need this to be the future of television, and I need everything ever all at once to be the future of cinema. Right. Like, right. like this. This is the bar. This is the standard. I need. I need bitches to be meeting and exceeding this. I need. Yeah. From here on out, we're just one upping from this because. I don't think I'll ever be able to go back to mediocre me television. Yeah. Unless you're like a feel good show or whatever that I'm just playing to get into my feels. But if you're trying to like be a show, you know, I'm I'm going to need a little bit more effort. <laughs> I'm going to need I'm yeah. going to need some creativity.
0: I love when we have, you know, an unlikable female main character, one of my favorite things mm-hmm. in all forms of media. That's why I Same. love Taylor Swift, Sally Rooney, or Tessa Moshfeg. Like, that's my big three. Flea you know bang. what I mean? Like, those <laughs> yeah. are my bitches. Like, I love them mm-hmm. because they're all girls, girls, who no one likes and slay. Like. <laughs> and, and
1: what is the lavender menace, if not
0: girls who <laughs> <love the> menace? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And, you know, they're all like, I love a hating ass bitch who is very deeply mentally ill, which
1: <laughs> same. Mm, that's why. Lady Mary was one of my first favorite characters. Just a Downton Abbey reference. She is a ha- she's a hater. A hater to her core. And I saw her at the ripe old age of 12 and I'm like that's me.
0: That's going to be my favorite character.
1: And, and Nadia still true
0: is a badass and mm-hmm. it's just like I love seeing a female character who is the smartest one in the room, funny as hell. <laughs> A Not reckless. Emotionally <laughs> unintelligent. Emotion- emotionally stunted, yeah. but quite complex in a way that uh so few pieces of media Which can the really show, get into the complexities of.
1: Yeah. And and the show explores that. Like a lot of season two is literally the multi generational
0: healing of inner child. <laughs> like Yeah. Emotion like, doll of getting to the core of, like, the peeling back the layers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Of, of
1: who you are, who you are as a family, where you stand in the line of your familial history, and mm-hmm. also looking at that from a matriarchal perspective. hmm mm-hmm. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. And we see Nadia literally develop a relationship with her child self at, like, remothering yeah. herself in mm-hmm. a way that she would have wanted to be mothered. But then also mothering her mother (laughs) and then how her adult's shortcomings in terms of her own emotional development how when once it is contextualized in her larger family history it's it's not like her fault it's not her
0: flaw as an individual human as to why she also not her predecessor's it's not her mother's no. fault, it's not her mother's mother's fault. It's no like mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, we see cuz in season 2, season 1 the concept was girl keeps dying. She
1: keeps dying. <laughs> season, and reliving the same moment over and over again.
0: Season 2 is about her living different moments as mm-hmm. time continues. Right? So it's a it's a mirror but distorted. The same way that whenever yeah. Nadia looks in the mirror now, It's a distorted version of herself because it's her mother. Yeah. It's her mother's mother that she sees. It's brilliant. Oh, my God. And I was rewatching the first couple episodes before recording today, you know, to take my, Mm -hmm. you know, because because I do the readings. And (laughs) it was so interesting to think about the varying themes that are particular to this episode and then the ones that carried over, or this season, and Mm -hmm. the ones that carried over from season one. Because I actually think that the video, the 45-minute video essay that you didn't watch that I sent you that we talked about in our Russian Doll episode, the things that that creator, and I linked it in the description of our previous... Russian Doll episode. I think the themes that she was talking about that this creator had pulled out from season one is exactly what season two fully fleshed out which I was like mm-hmm. and see this is what happens when the media criticism women
1: and the perception the yeah
0: <laughs> and also when the people who are consuming a piece of media are finally or are, are actually getting what you're putting down or picking up what you're putting down mm-hmm. even though it's not being handed to you in a really explicit way you know when you watch season one the reality of what's happening is so absurdist all the time. I mean, same for season two, but mm-hmm. in season one, where you're getting the initial premise, it's so bizarre. But what is at the heart of it and the themes that it is actually exploring, which is mother-daughter relationships, generational trauma, and and hauntings, is what the second season really explores by literally going into the time periods that season one Nadia was only vaguely referencing in some bits of dialogue and conversation and the brilliance of the writing and the dialogue and the conversation it can also be reflected in season two how in I think first or second episode when she meets the guy at the bar who works at Eddie's which is the yeah. tv shop the all of their conversations on a second watch I was like this is brilliant because when she walks into the tv store that he works at he's describing to her a type of I'm forgetting what it's called but it's a type of technology that sort of reflects and refracts what is going on with the person who is standing in the middle of it so it's basically two mirrors Mm -hmm. facing each other and he's just describing it as like you know he works at the store he's describing it but that is obviously exactly what's happening to Nadia in that moment and we see it in Mm -hmm. how we see Nadia Natasha Lyonne standing there And then in the reflection and in the TV that she is being demonstrated, the process of this technology and the reflection thing is her mom, who is pregnant with her. And this season plays with time in a different way than than season one, because in season one, it was a reset, right? But in season two, time is still moving. And every time she jumps back shit is still moving in her original original timeline self in the primary timeline exactly in the contemporary one and it all collapses on itself as we progressively get further into the season the same way that it starts to collapse on itself in season one when we get the rules which is everything resets initially when shit stops resetting that's how you know Okay, it's getting... Like, stuff is really rot. crumbling. <laughs> exactly. When, when, the, people, when the fish die. When, when the, the people start disappearing. Cook. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in this season, it's when these timelines start getting mixed up. And yeah. now... And the, merging and existing
1: right. at the same time. Like, multiple timelines existing on, like, yeah. layered on top of each other. And
0: on the first season, there was the visual motifs that you said, right? The produce, the mm-hmm. fish... In this motif, this season, the motif is trains, obviously, right? And, like, the actual... And something that the video essay... Trains, mirrors...
1: And there's a bit of the, like, natural grotesque as well from... Season one,
0: and there's also the party scenes and the drug consumption and yeah. all of that that was present in season one too, and the side but that's just
1: because Nadia it, is not up you yes, know
0: exactly. <laughs> Nadia will find herself in these situations
1: regardless on on a regular <laughs> weekend or when she's traveling through space and time. Yeah, so.
0: yeah, and I think like I think season two is it's not as formulaic as season one because it's not it doesn't follow. Uh, that simple formula, it builds on it. What formula? Every episode, you reset once, twice, ten times, and you're trying to figure oh, out yeah, how yeah. you okay. get out of that resetting. Season two, yeah. What are the the intention here is that Nadia wants to go back in time because she's been offered this opportunity to go back in time. Previously, like, if she wants to go back in time to try to fix things and do things better, and in doing so, like, shit gets weird. Whereas in season one. She's trying to get out of the situation. She doesn't see it as mm-hmm. an opportunity. She sees it as a punishment. Season two, she sees this as like, okay, this is weird, but I've died. So what can be weirder than that? <laughs> like a hundred times. Right. But, um, yeah, what could be definitely... worse than dying? Living as your mom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when, when Sunny and I saw that, <laughs> that the, the punishment, the alternative was right. being in your, your mom's body, we were like, wow. Well, Relatable
0: content for <laughs> would you rather with die a Sagittarius mom a million times or live <laughs> or be as your mom, your mom. <laughs> <laughs> and and be back Do- with yourself the Sagittarius. now what
1: exactly <laughs> daughters of Sagittarius sound off below season one definitely leans more on the like video game structure that's like a very big part of how Nani is able to figure out what's happening to her, and also how to beat it, essentially, because it's, like, a a glitch in the system, a bug in the system type of thing. And that's also why it keeps resetting, right? Like, even Mm -hmm. if you play a game a hundred times, when you die and you reset, you go back to the same, like, save point or whatever. And that's essentially what happens in Season 1. And then in Season 2, like you said, how time continues. It's not... There's references to it, like, NPCs, like... There are people, because she's like in a body that's not hers, there are people that know who her mom is and people who don't. Parts of the cities that she recognizes. Like we meet young Ruth, which her dynamic, like Nadia being Nora interacting with Ruth who she sees as a mother figure but in her mom's body is actually her best friend mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that layering and also the grandma's best friend who is also who is a mother figure to Nora <laughs> who is also present in Nadia's life like all of those relationships the way that time relates to them they don't really reset but as the show progresses like you said time collapses on itself so do these relationships mm-hmm. like the degrees of separation between like Nadia Ruth her mom. I'm forgetting the mom's best friend name. What is her name? Lydia. Ly- De- Delia. 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 Thank you. All of those are collapsing in on themselves. And essentially, that is the representation of time. Like, okay, the way that this, sh- like...
0: It's so brilliant because women, she's not women changing in this show. anything. She's doing no, the exact she's behaving thing that her Nadia mom and her mom's mom did. exactly... Yes, and but, but the thing is that she's just embodying what they are doing. But everyone else, and she thinks she's her. outsmarting yeah. her yeah. mom.
1: She thinks she's outsmarting her mom, her grandma. She
0: because she's, she's doing heard the things, these stories. Right, right. She knows. Like what she's plays heard out. the stories
1: of the events that she is in, like her entire life. Like, and it's talked about in the way that like your mom will lecture you or your grandma will lecture yeah. you about the same thing over and Or overnight. Ruth or their hardships always or tells. hardships.
0: Ruth is always referring to her mother in her conversations with Nadia. Mm -hmm. Ruth is always like, your Mm -hmm. mom always did this. Your mom, when she was pregnant with you, she loved this. Mm -hmm. And Nadia's always like, okay, Ruth, whatever. And then and then she becomes her mom in those relationships, in those conversations
1: with Ruth. Whoa! And because she's heard all this before, she thinks that the decisions that she's making are... Better. ...going to better and are more reflective and have the gift of, like, hindsight or right, whatever. Right, But in reality, she's literally going beat for beat <laughs> the exact same thing mm-hmm. that her mother and grandmother did. And it's, like, these women in each of their respective lives are their main characters, are the leaders of their life, are, like, these women are not the sidekicks and the side pieces, <laughs> not in the colloquial side piece term, but like, they're not the female additive to another male, or just any other main character. Like, these are, they're blazing their own trail, if you will. And their best companionships for at least Nora and the grandmother are other women. Like, men are either the ops, or Or Alan. Those are the two (laughs) roles that men play. Right. And, like, there's the cop that Nadia keeps running into. Mm -hmm. And even the MTA worker ends up being Alan's grandmother who helped Nora when she was giving birth to Nadia. Like, the way that women's relationship and the presence of women just in the world, in society, in community, the way that when you step outside, you see women. They're everywhere. And this show doesn't have them as like backdrops or as as the NPCs, like they are the smart women, the philosophical women. The way that like Nadia's extensive understanding of philosophy and culture and deep cuts and pop culture references across time that she's able to use to translate her ability to charm and talk to people. As, as she's going throughout these decades. Like the show itself is brilliant in its writing and its directing in the way that it is able to put this into visual medium, But it's also just so reflective of coming from a matriarchal family. Like I have a family that is majority women. I grew up with having nine grandmas. My mom only had one brother. I only had one boy cousin. Everyone else was a girl. All the people that were born into the family were women. All the men in the family were their husbands. And they right. sat in the corner and didn't say anything. <laughs> like, right. they, they built things and they grilled. Yeah. And that's about it. All, all, all the real talk, all yeah. the business shit, that was done by the women right. the, of, of the family that I spend the most time with. And so it's like hashtag real, but mm-hmm. also absurdist, ex- mm-hmm. existentialist, like drugs in, in Europe. <laughs> like, Laced shit. Yeah. Tra- like, falling through space holes. Like, it's... It's so... Yeah. I, I, I need to be a fly on the wall in that writer's room so bad. <laughs> like, I need yeah. to hear the conversations that, like,
0: write this yeah. show. Because like, every I writer saying. and director of every episode are women.
1: Slay so hard. It's women every time. They slay. They're
0: women. Same thing. Right, right, right. Same thing. Yeah. Like, and I mean, okay, something that was present in season one as the ensemble cast of the background of these characters' lives was Beatrice, right? Alan's, Mm -hmm. at that time, girlfriend. And then also Mike, the person that
1: yeah. Nadia sleeps with
0: initially and then also the person that Beatrice is cheating on Alan with. Mm-hmm. So I think, and Mike functions as... And the person as... that
1: Alan had to stop Nadia from sleeping with. Right. In the finale. It's... I mean, watch Russian Doll, guys. I'm not... Right.
0: No. <laughs> At least he's and... the one. <laughs> the thing is, is that... Mike does the thing where he is somewhat of a pseudo-intellectual and he's always commenting on these major historical events like AIDS and fucking, you know, Mm -hmm. making his comments about capitalism and whatever. I think Mm -hmm. that in season two, that becomes extended and projected through a bunch of other male characters that are scattered throughout, right? Nadia runs Mm -hmm. into the is it the red guardian the angel the guardians who are in in, the, oh, in yeah in the 80s timeline right which is basically a very when I, I i thought okay very like black panther party-esque type of organization like red berets typical like servicing the community self-defense type of thing mm-hmm. right and like a alternative to like community structure versus like policing and stuff yeah like. exactly and we see her go to the community center there to try to figure out what's going on and try to get help through through like this organization and through this one character. And then we also, of course, have the Eddie's guy who has that really interesting conversation with her when she steps into the store because she wants to g- get these negatives that she stole from the library <laughs> blown up on a projector. That's <laughs> real. And because of that, he's, you know... But she meets him initially at the bar that she had met the drug dealer in the first episode mm-hmm. of season one. First episode of season two, she's meeting this random guy who happens to be sitting there and he's like, oh yeah, I work it here. And she runs into him again at the store and he helps her get... Like, these these men side characters, they drive the, the plot in that she is barreling through asking them to do things for her. And mm-hmm. another thing is that... There's so much they problem. all have a purpose. Whereas, yeah. I think it's also
1: important to contrast to how many women and female side characters that are just there to, quote-unquote, like, be pretty. And if they happen to add something to the plot, if they happen to be useful, there's anything besides the damsel in distress mm-hmm. that was, like, an addition. Whereas the men in this show... It's not like reverse damsel in distress. It's yeah. like you're either going to lead me somewhere, give me information, do something for me, uh-huh.
0: or you're cut. <laughs> you're
1: yeah. not making it.
0: Yeah. It, it, they're also intentional. And like, I mean, ob- uh, another set of the ensemble characters from season one was, you know, the guy who ran the corner store. He's friends with mm-hmm. Nadia, he's friends with Alan. In this timeline, Basically, his dad is also functions as, and, and Nadia mentions this too, she tries to prove to Alan, see, I went back into the 80s, look, I got this nuclear war pamphlet, but she can't find it because none of the physical things from the other timeline passes over into the other timelines, which is such an interesting mm-hmm. rule that obviously gets broken when it becomes necessary to break that rule, right? I yeah. I think that, of course, there there's like a lot of political resonance and, and commentary throughout season 1 but season 2 it is so it, it's so much more embodied because we're going into these very historic time periods where she's looking at the culture of the thing she she sees the cat's board and she's like mm, not my thing but <laughs> and she sees uh, but also of course there's the red beret people those dudes who are helping her out and then there's the people standing all around being like being like no nuclear war and it's the cornsworth mm-hmm. guy's dad and then there's also that the fucking uh Chez or not Chez Cavera, the Cavera dude that her mother yeah, was like, sleeping with. He I think he, it is
1: Chez, but that's his shortened name. It's like Cesarone or something. Yeah, like some that. some
0: some gay whack shit like that. So <laughs> che, so that guy, he also in the very first episode when she's just She hasn't realized that she is her mother yet. She's just going about Mm -hmm. the world like, yo, it's cool. I'm Nadia and I'm in the 80s. Okay, whatever. She's taking it in stride because she's like, when the universe fucks with you, let it. She literally says that, right? (laughs) And Chez is always saying, we're going to move up in the world, right? Like he keeps on going on this Mm -hmm. rant about like, we're not like these other people. We're going to fuck these like yuppies and whatever. Mm -hmm. That is a constant theme in the first episode of season two. It's like, okay, no nuclear war, there's this like Red Beret group, there's this guy who's ranting at me about, you know, not like being eccentric or whatever. Something that I really wanted to focus on was the Eddie's dude, after he helps her out, he's like, Nadia, I just want to let you know, I'm not just the guy who works at Eddie. I'm also like a filmmaker and I want to look at commodity fetishism in the perspective of the Debordian spectacle. And she's like, okay, whatever. And she moves on. But <laughs> I, I, because the writer's room of this show is so fucking brilliant, I went ahead and tried to look up, like, what the fuck he was talking about. Obviously, I know what commodity mm-hmm. fetishism is, which is basically when products are imbued with a sense of life and meaning that the product itself doesn't actually reflect. And that idea of symbolic imagery and meaning in otherwise meaningless objects is so present throughout the entirety of the show because, you know, we see all the advertisements and the signs. Of course, it's literally the MTA, so it's the subway. Like, anyways, there's there's the posters in the background. But the Debordian spectacle is sort of this idea that as... Wikipedia says, in the general sense, the spectacle refers to the autocratic reign of the market economy, which had acceded to an irresponsible sovereignty and the totality of new techniques of government, which accompanied this reign. It also means in a more limited sense where spectacle means the mass media, which are its most glaring superficial manifestation. The board said that the society of the spectacle came to existence in the late 1920s, right? So it's this Marxist idea that mass media and spectacle are are really present in people's lives and it's really driving it and that is a like that is a central theme throughout season two and we even see that sort of capitalism and socialism dynamic Especially in Alan's timeline when he's literally in the mm-hmm. USSR and he's in East Berlin, right? Like, there is some really heavy political commentary going on in season two that I think in season mm-hmm. one was sort of not really delving into. Because season two is inherently, I think, more politically vibrant because we're exploring these heavily politicized eras, right? New York City in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So many things were happening then. Like, in the first season, we only get those references from Mike offhand. We only get those sort of... This this idea that there are these larger... Syst- like, we get the mentions of the Holocaust. Well, we get it.
1: them from Nadia, too.
0: Yeah, like, we... we we under But we hear it secondhand, right? In season two, we're experiencing it mm-hmm. in the time. Like, Alan yeah. is is there in East Berlin. Like, Naya is in Budapest when the Nazis' stolen items from the Jews have been dropped off there. She is in... Mm-hmm. They're in the middle of these things, and because it's present, it's prescient on a political level, it, it, they're there because on a personal level, it is, politi- it is prescient. She is living as her mother and her mother's mother, whereas in episode one, her mother and her mother's mother have only been referenced in her own dialogue in her own words. Mm-hmm. Here we are embodying it. Instead of just the the sidehand, offhand references to the political spectacle to the uh previous generations and to intergenerational trauma, we are living that generation. We are going through these intergenerations. We are going through the political realities of those times. And I think like that's such a brilliant way to explore the world of the show and these characters in a much deeper manner. It's also interesting to see, because Alan and Nadia are obviously, like, foils for each other. In season one, Nadia, like, Alan is super into this whole reliving his life thing. He's like, okay, cool, like, there's this routine that I can settle into. He's really into that. Whereas in season two, and and also, another parallel and reflection that season two has, that I noticed, was that episode four of both seasons is one where we start narrowing in on what the fuck is actually going on with Alan, right? Mm -hmm. On episode four, in uh, season two, that's when we realized Alan is also going back into the past. Again, season one, what drove Alan's desires and actions was his relationship to Beatrice. Season two, it's his relationship to Lenny, which was his mother's lover in Berlin. So Mm -hmm. that is another interesting parallel. And also, Alan just like he was really into the whole death thing initially, because he was like, I get to relive my days, and I love this routine, he's also really into being able to go back into the past. He's like, Nadia, it's so amazing. Like, I met this really great person, and like, oh, it's, I love this, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. in both seasons, he starts being like, okay, no, like, this is not, things start happening that are like, that he's like, not into anymore. But I think that that is so interesting, because in contrast to Nadia, who approaches both of these things in trepidation, she's kind of skeptical, right? She's uh, very—I mean—in the first season, she's very alarmed, as one would be. (laughs) But (laughs) she, she's alarmed. She's trying to get to the bottom of things. By season two, she's like no longer as alarmed, but she's still very skeptical. Whereas Alan is willing to be like, "Well, this is cool. Let's just see what happens." Like, I, I like this, Uh, and I think like that's such an interesting contrast because it's another gender bent element thing right where the male character is the one who is driven primarily by like romantic desires and more emotional non like logical side of things whereas uh, again nadia is the one who is barreling through trying to get get to the bottom of, of everything trying like Alan is there for the along for the ride. He's there just to be there. She has a goal and a plan. Her goal is mm-hmm. to get those crew because her the, the crew necklace in season 1 it's always there, but it's not full, it's not like deeply explored, right? It's not central to what's going on in See, season. See, but one. I
1: I disagree with that. I disagree with that and I disagree with the like the family things with season 1 because the thing is is that ultimately the objective in during season 1 is to survive longer than like 48 hours you're not it's not that these things were off handed or not present but they were not the primary objective at hand but they still played a very important part in the characterization and in the
0: storytelling Right, but that's why season two—that's why season two exists because it explores that more. That's why, like yes. season one, set it up. But the reason why it wasn't explored in season one was because there wasn't the room in the storytelling to do so, which is why it's not a central mm-hmm. figure of that text. Season two makes it the central figure because it has there's actually room and time and space to actually do that. So I'm not saying that it's not integral to season one. Those those themes, those motifs, those elements. It's just that in season 1 it couldn't be what was most central because we didn't know these like characters and their backstories yet and we didn't have a reason to care we develop a re- reason to care and a reason to understand these characters motivations as we see them go through this somewhat methodical repetitive motion of living out their own lives again and again and as they're doing that we start to understand well the reason why they're doing this is because of this intergenerational trauma this this Inner child thing, the the Russian doll. But of we also an, get that self. in
1: season one when not. That's what I'm saying. In season one, self. that's what
0: happens. In season one, that's and what like, happens. Yeah,
1: the way that she starts bleeding and then she pulls yeah, out. That's what like, I'm saying. She's
0: bleeding. She that it's it's the build up to that because we see that in mm-hmm. episode like six or seven. That's when mm-hmm. her younger self starts starts appearing. Right, like we had to build up to that point through the repetitive. Reality of that video game like thing. Once you get into it's kind of like when you start playing a video game, you're just trying to figure out the rules of the game and how the how the world works and the limitations of your character. But then once you're like in it, you can start having your own objectives and changing your character. And you know you know what I mean. Like it's more mm-hmm. so setting up the world and then it, season one is like setting up the world, getting to know the character of and getting well, to know your yeah. avatar. And then season two is a new rotation of like avatars right in a deeper understanding of your world
1: there are other just like musical details and audio details that obviously i'm not going to pick up on one on a first watch and two just like with my own musical catalog knowledge but those details are still in the show and that attention to detail that just like mm, is so freaking good it's just it's so like, the I brilliance. need, I need in a room with every single person who's like ahead of a department that goes into the show, lighting, music, the writer's room, all of the directors, like I need extensive conversations with each of these people, because, and, uh, okay, this is another thing about this show, is that I think it is, it's just so evident that the people who make this show, the writers, the creators, the producers, are interesting people themselves like you just can't have this piece of content you can't make this and not be cool yourself like this is a product of how other are you gonna write the
0: line the commodity fetishism of the Debordian spectacle and like, mm. like what yes that's one of the things that i was
1: gonna say when you we were talking that i was thinking i was like oh i need to put a pin in that thought is that like all of the things that Nadia knows and Nadia talks about is known by the people writing it. <laughs>
0: like, right. the people, like, and... The gold train have and it, the actual history of, like, the socialist project. Exactly. People, the, the Ghanaian, like, international student in...
1: Yes. Right. East Berlin, like, at that time, like, they would have to know that or at least have some idea of it and part of that could be from like natasha's own jewish heritage like it could partly be informed by the stories that she's heard or other jewish writers or other writers with like family that are from a similar either era or geographical place but even that like collection of cultural or just history knowledge and the like philosophical knowledge is not only present and evident that the people who are writing it know know when they're using it why they're using it and are using it correctly but are also cool people and that the way that they like have nadia say it have not explain it have her make those connections are in a funny way are in a natural way are in a way that someone who's witty clever and funny would also be philosophical and historical and then when it doesn't separate her
0: present and when it doesn't feel real that's when you get the mics Mm -hmm. That's when you get these no,
1: and right. I was literally going to say, and that's what separates Mike from Nadia in their observation, societal takes, whatever. And it's also why these writers were able to even make Mike, because these are very clearly very smart women who are making this show who've probably had to meet many Mikes and have many conversations with Mike. I know what you're talking about, and I know in a better, funnier, wittier, clever way to talk about this in a modern social setting or whatever or any social setting since we literally travel through time and like to me that is just so cool and like not only is the piece of media that I am consuming fun and I like the characters but it also feels in a reflective of the people who make it but like in a good way, whereas mm-hmm. Sam Levinson mm-hmm. is a chaser and gross mm-hmm. and weird. Mm-hmm. Like these women are fun, cool, slain, creative, and smart. Like mm-hmm. it's, and like in the we way have an that...
0: yeah, episode on on Euphoria on Patreon by the way. Anyway.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. There's something that's like beyond or outside just Russian Doll in the universe within the show, but it as a phenomena and as a just cultural piece that I think is interesting and I think people who don't I like I haven't seen I just don't interact with people who don't like Russian doll I haven't seen anyone say that they don't like it I assume that there are a lot of bitches who don't and it's because they're not meeting the mark (laughs) like yeah I am really curious to think anyone who gets it I think it would be impossible to not like Russian doll like yeah because it's, it's just not a show that you can just like passively watch or just pop in the background or not think while watching it. Like you have to be an active watcher. You have to be an active listener. You have to engage your senses, engage your critical thinking skills, listen to what these characters are saying. Pull on your own understanding of the world, culture, history, and also be open-minded to learning or hearing about the histories of other people that maybe isn't directly to your familial ties. Like you have to kind of in order but that's also just to get the most out of it as well. Like there're shows that are layered in a way where you could enjoy it passively, like like listening to Taylor Swift. Everyone yeah. loves love story. Everyone yeah. loves our song. Like you can pop that in the background, play it, you know, yeah. clean your room whatever. And you can also really peel back the layers of a lot of her album songs and Mm -hmm. and music. Russian Doll, maybe if you don't pay attention, you'll laugh at a couple one-liners, whatever, but you're not going to get a lot out of it. It's only if you are an active consumer, an active participant in the universe, in the show, if you actually give in to what the show's asking of you, will you be able to fully enjoy it. And that structure of... Media in general, like in books, in music, in television, in film. That is the stuff that is fulfilling for me to consume. That's the stuff that I like. Like, I like feel-good stuff. I like a rom-com, whatever. But what's actually going to, like, change my brain chemistry, rock my world, mm-hmm. is the stuff that uses that uses this little little bit that not all of you like to turn on from time to time. So that's exactly. the difference between me and
0: you. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, another thing that you were, that made me think about this is that Russian Doll, because it is an original piece of work that, it's, it's an original text originally constructed for television as a limited, mm-hmm. as like a series, not for a, not for cable, not for like television, but for Network, streaming. week to week. Yeah. Ad. Because it's like that it uses that medium to its fullest form that yeah. other shows that are brilliant and well regarded such as normal people which i haven't seen or the queen's gambit which i have which i have seen those are adaptations of mm-hmm. like novels right yeah. and because they're adaptations of novels they can creatively explore the themes and the characters and the realities that those original texts Explore while using all of these like visual cues and the auditory stuff and the soundtrack and you know lighting etc. The thing that's so brilliant about Russian Doll is that it's an adaptation of these women's own lives and everything that's coming out of their own brains, their own ideas mm-hmm. coming directly their own onto the screen. More intergenerational <laughs> <laughs> right, right. trauma and issues. Exactly thinking about motherhood in a way that's like so. Like motherhood, while when explored through time travel, everything everywhere, it's it's all no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Immigrant mothers and their and their (laughs) and their daughters, immigrant mothers and their only daughters who is scared? Who, (laughs) like, many people should be scared. Because, like, that relates...
1: There's so much... There's so much... There's so much there. But this is also what I mean in that, like... For both of us, like, we know what we like. (laughs) Like, we... Like... Like... My taste is, like, mother-daughter relationships explored in an interesting way. Right. If... I don't care how many versions, iterations... (laughs) Like, saving face. Everything everywhere all at once. Like... Um Russian doll, What's right? One? I mean, even flea bag, honestly. Yeah, because grief, you know, motherhood, exactly.
0: Yeah, yes. like
1: all of those, I will eat it up every yeah. time. If you do that and you do it well, yeah. you sprinkle in a little gay girl shit.
0: Yeah,
1: I will eat it up every time. <laughs> like that's just the way exactly. that it is. But also, like that, those themes, those motifs, are. When explored correctly and from the perspective, like, from women, people who have these complicated mother-daughter relationships that are able to tap into it in a way that, like, feels natural, but then also transgresses the medium that they're doing it in. When you do that and you do it well, it just has to be good. Like, in a way that a lot of these woe is me white White men movies that we've gotten for centuries now, I fear some of them hit, some of them are good. Is that a, the success rate on that? I'm not sure it's living up to the success rate of the media that I enjoy, personally speaking.
0: What do you think about, because I was telling you, I, at the end of season two, I was like, this kind of feels like it might be another Fleabag situation. And also Fleabag and the mm-hmm. show have a very are are very comparable I think they are mm-hmm. they're pretty similar in that they're following a main female character who is really complicated and you know and there's that humor but there's also the dramatic elements like it it's that th- these shows being compared makes a lot of sense to me but I was mm-hmm. trying to ask you about or like what you think about like how the end of Fleabag season 2 is perfect because it only should exist as two seasons it yes. because and the ending is is good as it is. What do you think about Russian Doll? Russian Doll? Because do you think it could end after two seasons and, you know, every it's good as it is. It's resolved in that the the story is resolved as a story as a you know, it's not like resolve resolved resolved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we know everything ties up neatly. But yeah, what do you yeah. think? Cuz there might be a season 3, I think, from what I've heard of of Russian Doll.
1: I I would be interested in a season three. I think if it ended now, it would kind of have a similar thing where like, when Fleabag, when it was announced that there's not going to be season three, like at the end of season two, everyone was like losing their shit. Like, (laughs) no, like I need a 100 of these, you know? And so I definitely think that there would be that like, sad period of like, no, we want more Russian doll. But eventually, like with rewatches and with time, People would come to see that it was perfect at two seasons. I think that if they can do it, season three would be cool and and good because even when we were just watching and rewatching season one, I was like, it could end here or like like right. this could be it. Like season one could have been a perfect miniseries like mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. and it it the ending that where it was would have been. perfect ending and now looking at season two i feel very similarly we're like this could be it but also imagine if we didn't get the season two (laughs) like right it it was so brilliant so if they can i think a season three would be good i don't think that they should go past three seasons like i think if there is an additional season that should be the end and i would go into it expecting it to be the end and i think if it went past season three it would just be cash grabs and deteriorate quickly in quality because I'm not sure how else they can bend the universe and the laws of physics. Right, right, right. While grappling with the themes that they have already carried across two seasons into a third one. Yeah. I trust these writers, but if if we end at two seasons, I'll be sad because I love the show, but also I'll just keep rewatching these two seasons like
0: Yeah. Well, okay, actually I'm reading an Atlantic article about season 2 right now and Mm-hmm. I just pulled it up. It came out less than 24 hours ago on the day of recording. So, it's... Mm-hmm. People... the fresh, The content hot generation off the based off of this show, it's quite new. There's not much material mm-hmm. out there. Which makes sense. It's a complex thing to try to digest. But... I mean, we're doing it right <laughs> exactly. now. We're part of that. Apparently, Leon has said that Russian Doll has always been designed to have a three-season arc. And the writer mm-hmm. of this article says... Which is hopefully why season two's final moments feel so shatteringly incomplete. To end here with Nadia high grieving and staring hollow eyed into a mirror that once signified her stubborn survival would be a callous conclusion to a character who has embodied resilience in the face of impossible challenges. Now all Nadia can do is surrender. See,
1: Um. and I agree. Like, I think the ending that we have for season two would be good only in the post-mortem like if the show had ended then the season would be good I feel the the way that it ended actually once you just said that that did remind me of actually more of the season one finale of Fleabag the ending of season two and the look that Naughty's in and the state that she's in very season one finale Fleabag coded-esque um
0: yeah it's because we see Fleabag yeah. at like her lower like yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. the Realization. There's, there's and a tr- there's a triumph the rejection and... of the yes yes there's a triumph at the end of season one Russian doll but there is mm-hmm. absolute desperation and sorrow at and the devastation end of, season two of yeah. Russian doll and it... whereas in Fleabag end of season one it was like okay everything is gone to shit end of season two yeah. lovely which is why it doesn't mm-hmm. have to fall I can in love the again <laughs> right exactly <laughs> but anyways what you were what were you saying
1: I I trust when Natasha says that. Russian Dolls always designed in this flea bag, or in this. Oh my gosh, flea bag! It's all coming together. Time is collapsing in on me, um, in mm-hmm. this three-season structure. Because I think it just also in Western storytelling, like the three, the three-act play, the three-part story: beginning, middle, end. I see flea bag like with the third season. I feel like it would feel like this is. The beginning middle end and I feel like it would recontextualize season two which is why I'm like okay season two as an ending works because that's how it's already that's how I've already consumed it (laughs) like that's all I have a season three would recontextualize season two specifically because season one is always going to be the beginning but that changes season two from the end to the middle and then the, the question that comes from that is, so what's the end? And that is what essentially would be the exploration of season three. If they do that successfully and as slayful as they did season one and two, then yes, of mm-hmm. course. Yum, yum, mm-hmm. yum. I want more. If it's not, yeah, but these women have given me no reason to doubt them.
0: So yeah. lead
1: I, if, and I will follow. Right, right, right. But this is also coming from a bitch who has been in the television <laughs> in the right. television scene for a hot minute.
0: So, the Atlantic article from Sophie Gilbert, one of the last paragraphs, she sort of comes to the conclusion that throughout Nadia's travels, Ruth in both her 1982 and 2022 timelines keeps telling her things she needs to hear but won't attend to. That in the end, mm-hmm. nothing can absolve us but ourselves. That inherited trauma is too complicated to try to patch with a quantum leap jaunt through history. That the only way to bear what Nadia can't change is to accept that she can't change it. Throughout the new season, Russian Doll posits that Nadia is the bruised container for the pain her female forebearers felt. Her grandmother's hypervigilance and obsession with survival places a burden on Nora that Nora can't carry. Nora then smokes, drinks, and uses drugs while pregnant, all stressors that seem to condemn Nadia to a life of her own addictions. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, that's that's the other Russian doll element of the thing. Like, the an actual literal Russian doll is about, you know... It, and also, Nadia herself says, oh, you don't want to unpeel... You don't want to peel back the layers of that onion when someone asks mm-hmm. her, who are you? And, right, <laughs> it's like, that's the thing. Yeah. Because the reality of of this whole Russian doll situation is that we if if the outer layer is Nadia 2022 and the inner layers are her mother and then before that her mother's mother like the more we go in when we get back out again for her to understand herself as like a whole being she needs to possess those smaller dolls like back inside of her Mm -hmm. like they need to be more contained inside of her she can't want to change those things she can't change those those already done already experienced parts of what has happened to her and her mom and her mom's mom but i think because season two is sort of playing with nadia as someone who doesn't really have agency in her world whereas in season one she has agency in her world in a way mm-hmm. that in season two she doesn't It's, I don't know, I think it's just probably less satisfactory to viewers than season Mm -hmm. two was, right? Also with the ending, that wasn't a vague triumph and parade, but rather at a literal wake, right?
1: Yeah. And also, even that concept that Nadia is her mother and her mother's mother within her is warped again in the fact that she is inside her mother and she is inside her grandmother as she's traveling. So the idea of like Nadia is both the outer Russian doll, like the biggest one that holds all the men, and the tiny one, the one that doesn't open, the one that is inside the all. She is both and her mother and her grandmother live in the middle of who she is on the outside, and also who she is to her core. Which, I was going to quote, Lord, I am my mother's child. I love you till my breathing stops. Right, right, right. Like, that literally is Nadia, Nora, and Vera. Like, all three of them, all of the time. In relation to each other. Yeah, yeah. They, all three, love each other so much until their breathing stops. Yeah. Because they are their mother's child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, even Nora, she smokes when she's pregnant with Nadia because... And time can't like repeat itself because Nadia smokes when she is Nora, and because her body does. Ev- Nora does everything that Nadia is doing. If Nadia is smoking, then Nora is smoking, even though Nora is pregnant with Nadia, which then would lead Nadia to smoke. After she- like it, yeah. It, there's no, there's no escaping kind mm-hmm. of that,
0: that, yeah, familial fate in yeah. this way. And the same way that there's no escaping. The past, in a political sense and in a social mm-hmm. sense too, and even like when in Alan's timeline where he's like, "You guys don't have to sneak across the to get into West Berlin. The wall's gonna come mm-hmm. down in 1989," and Lenny's like, "That's like several decades from now." No, yeah, right. Like for for him, the that hindsight that. Both Alan and and Nadia possess on a both interpersonal and familial level, and on a political and social level, they they just knowing history, the events of history. Yeah, knowing like, and that's I think this show answers that fundamental question that all time travel media uh, sort of is seeks to explore. If you know what can happen in history. Can you go back and then change it if time worked in that way? And I think the answer is always no. And if you think about it in a historically materialist, dialectically materialist sense, that's true as well. And we were Mm -hmm. talking about this, right? It's like things are inevitable because they have happened. Once they have happened, it is inevitable that that happened. And mm-hmm. to understand that in a sociopolitical sense and on an, on an individual level is like one of the greatest thi- hurdles you have to overcome as like a human being person in the world, because yeah. so much of our living and the way that we embody ourselves is, is a reflection and a result of our past and how we understand our pasts. And you. Everyone has moments where they're like, "Oh, if I just did this one thing different, then everything would." The be. The Coney
1: Island. Exactly. The but if only.
0: The and um, if everything had been different, the one thing mm-hmm. be different <laughs> today. Mm-hmm. Um, what song is that again? The one. Right. I was when gonna say, I was like, different. Would
1: everything be different today?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and that and that's funny because. One of the, the fir- in episode one, when she visits Kavara in the modern day, and he's an old man living in this hovel, she mm-hmm. is basically, uh, she's trying to interrogate him to try to figure out what the fuck happened to the Cougarons. And he's like, it's a Coney Island. And she's like, what? And he's like, if my granddad didn't go to Coney Island and get polio, then like we wouldn't be poor and I wouldn't be in this position. But it already happened. So now what? And that's mm-hmm. in the first episode of the first season. And that's one of the first people that she talks to from her mother's life that is now old. You mean in the second season? Yeah, sorry. First episode in the second season, and that's one of the first people that Nadia speaks to from her mother's life. And it's actually and he's mm-hmm. the person who was around when her mother gave birth to Nadia. And Nadia is interrogating this guy to try to figure out what's going on. And this guy tells her it's a Coney Island. And the entire rest of season two is her understanding that things have already happened it's already played out this way love and Mm -hmm. as much as you try to explore the if only's the if only's only come to the same conclusion Uh, and like (laughs) and that's the thing like that's what is so interesting about this whole intergenerational thing because even when we meet like the grandson of the Nazi when they go to uh, Hungary and they're like partying mm. or whatever. No one can escape their pasts. Even Kavara, he's referencing his grandfather. Like, he, he's also in this position because he's attributing it to his grandfather and then in the conversation he refers to it as like a Coney Island. Like, uh, obviously Alan is only in this position because his mom, whom he has a really deep tie and connection to, which we see in season one and in season two, his mom's relationship to her mom was one where there wasn't that much intimacy there right because he's trying to ask his mom hey did grandma did your mom ever talk about this guy named Lenny and her grand and his mom is like we didn't talk about that shit what do you what the fuck are you talking mm-hmm. about like I don't know much about her life and like that's the thing like all of these characters reflects and mirrors Nadia's own experiences with trying to navigate the past through her mother and It's just like, ugh, the brilliance.
1: Ugh. It's so good. Amy Poehler, all I know, she's in there. She's in there cooking. She's in the kitchen cooking. And it's like her and Natasha that are really like spearheading this. And I am familiar with Amy Poehler as a comedian and as an actress. And I think she's written before, but I haven't read her work I think like an autobiography or like a memoir or something yes please yes thank you I'm so curious as to Amy Poehler's politic (laughs) and and her thoughts uh having watched this show because like Natasha is more vocal and obviously she's in the show so we see her and she plays Nadia the main character and there's clear ties between Nadia She's and the director Natasha. of the first
0: episode.
1: Yeah. Whereas Amy Poehler, her connection to the show is a lot more behind the scenes and we don't hear a lot of it. And that is just an aspect of the show as a product and in terms of the content. I, I want to know, like, this show literally has the USSR in it. Like, we see right. the, the East Berlin subway and there's a hammer and sickle in the background Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: like, yeah. like and then we literally the have Nazis to design that? walking around yeah. in Budapest and yes. the way that people are interacting with each other and the way that these people will just walk into a warehouse full of looted goods and mm-hmm. just take whatever they want and Nadia takes and the, advantage of this the, to get her shit back
1: yeah the priests that Nadia runs into as her <laughs> Jewish grandmother—he is literally his, his grave
0: is literally the one that modern Nadia, twenty twenty-two Ma- Nadia, sees an old Jewish mm-hmm. man put a stone on top of. Mm-hmm. Remember, it was that guy, yes, right? Yes,
1: yes. yes and yes, so when she goes back yes. in
0: time, she's like, "It's like all these things are connected. Everything is connected." Anyway. And it's it's just so
1: like. I need, I need to, t- it's the same way that every time I finish reading a Sally Rooney book, I'm like, Sa- I need to talk to Sally. Like, <laughs> I need to talk to the creator. Right. Like whenever I consume a piece of media that just feels so like it It does something in my brain. I can't describe it. Like I I need to get to the center of who made it. Like why, mm-hmm. how, did, how did this come from your brain? Like why your creative mind and not not why not abc the the people at abc network pumping yeah. out shit just to fill the time mm-hmm. like i mean obviously because they're not trying to make good shit and russian doll is very good capitalism. shit capitalism but Woo! like exactly but like i need to know i need to be a fly on the wall in that writers room but for now after my first watch and in the immediate wake of season 2 i think Currently, those are all of my thoughts. Sunny, do you have anything else to add?
0: I'm sure as video essays and essays roll out about season mm-hmm. two, I'll have more and other perspectives. And then as I watch and rewatch it, I'll have yeah. more and more thoughts. But for now, in the immediate aftermath of having just experienced mm-hmm. the show, these are this is a lot of what I've thought. So, yeah. Yes.
1: Oh, wait. Actually,
0: I'm that back. Oh, I that Oh, you have another thing?
1: Yeah. Annie Murphy... As in as young Ruth in the show. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no. A a quick little top it off with some horny moments at the end of the episode here. She slays so hard. Like Annie Murphy, you will always be famous. I love you. Slay. And the way that they wrote Ruth's dialogue in the past is so consistent with Ruth that we already knew and know as a character and like contemporary like it's just
0: we can so clearly it see it was so good yeah like I mean all like, the that the habits the actual, that didn't change the technical the prowess of these acts mm-hmm. like even the first episode of season two when mm-hmm. um Chloe oh my god how do we um, Seven yet? Yeah, Sevigny is and and Natasha Lyonne have to play mirrors of each other, and they have to literally so be mirrors. good. And then when they, these so cu- these alternating shots of them being good. in the same body in the same person, like I also want to. Chloe really Sevigny's analyze,
1: performance is so yeah, good in this show. I want to <laughs> so look like, at
0: the different insane. the directorial and editing decisions made in when Nadia mm-hmm. is being embodied as the selves. Of the timelines that she is traveled mm-hmm. to, versus when she is perceived presented as Natasha Leon, Nadia. Like I want to, I because yeah. the scenes will cut back and forth, and obviously whenever she sees a mirror or a reflection of herself, she sees the version of herself of that timeline. But we, for the majority of it, see her as her, whereas everyone around her treats her as the person's body whom she is embodying. It's just like mm-hmm. ooh, there's so much, there's so much there. It's, it's so brilliant. like. Just, and I think I
1: said this in the episode where we talk about season one, like just the, pro- the performances of these actors is wild. Like they bring every time, because in order to have a convincing performance that time is collapsing in on your character, but your character doesn't know that they're experiencing time collapse, but you're an actor having to play that, like you know that you're acting, but your character doesn't experience time Same world
0: way world. how in season one... It's like the Mm -hmm. same scene over and over and over again, but the same actors have to do the same thing. Sweet birthday baby. Yeah. Oh my god. God, Sweet birthday baby. Yeah. It's season two because literally of that. Oh my god. Literally,
1: the way that that's That's the first thing that is said to Nadia in her life ever is, (laughs) "Happy birthday, sweet baby," or whatever, or "Sweet birthday baby," and then that is the thing that it's so Brent, but like. It's the acting, and also, one of my favorite things, I don't think this is, like, an Easter egg at all, but just, like, one of the creative decisions is the coloring changes in the different yeah. scenes. Like, in Budapest, it's kind of this, like, teal-red color. It kind of looks like Queen gambit e like, yeah, coloring, yeah, 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 yeah. If, yeah. <laughs> if you're familiar with that work. Um, right. And then, like, in the 80s, it kind of has that, like, grainy film-type texture. Yeah, yeah, Like, warmer. Um, but kind of gritty, like, dark. Yeah, gritty, dark. And then the contemporary times has a lot of like multi colors, like flashing lights, lights. Yeah, flashing lights. Um, and also just like looks more like season one, since season one we yeah see the yeah, same yeah timeline yeah. that detail kind of like in the um 2020 or 2019 Little Women, how like there's the warmer color for, yeah, like, yeah the yeah. past and like the cool like mm-hmm. the way that time. And color works in visual mediums like in TV and film. I it is one of those things. I, I said it when, when I'll we eat it up every time. Everything, yeah. And the same thing with everything. we all at once. Like if you have fun lighting, <laughs> fun coloring moments, I will enjoy it. I will give you those props every time because it's just a detail that I like. Because whenever I see shit where the coloring is just boring or it looks like it's not done intentional or it's just yeah, just not intentional, to me. It, it's just, it's a space, it's a creative space that was not fulfilled and not utilized to its fullest potential. And the things like Russian Doll and everything everywhere all at once.
0: When they all use, already are going so well in so many directions, but then they also yeah, get those details. Oh my God. Just
1: the When they just fully take up all the creative space possible and hit it out of the park. <laughs> love you. Love you. Right. But anyways, that that truly horniness and coloring included at the end right. there. Those are all of my thoughts after the right. first watch right.
0: and so, immediate yeah. wake. That's our classic second part media analysis. And now to move on to our third part of every episode <laughs> oh, where we yeah. do media recommendations.
1: recommendations. So, this is a movie. I checked on Letterboxd and you don't have it logged. So, tell me if you ha. have seen it. But it's called My First Summer... From 2020? Yes. Okay. It's an Australian indie film about these two 16-year-old, maybe like 16 and 17-year-old girls. Wait!
0: I tried to watch this the other day, but I didn't get through it because I was not watching it legally, so anyway. Um, And it was (laughs) like, anyway, okay, continue. I also did not watch it legally. The quality was just not great, so... Oh, I got through the I'll first send you like the link that minutes.
1: I use. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, then you kind of know the concept, but I will describe it for...
0: I didn't know it was Australian. The... I just thought they kind of talked in a fucked up way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please. Oh my God. And there's this girl who is kind of living out of her house alone without anyone knowing, like without authorities knowing that she's living alone she's isolated from the general community so no one really goes over there anyway to even Mm -hmm. be able to snoop out but one girl grace she kind of doesn't have the best home life and so like during the summer when she's not in school and stuff she just kind of like goes on her bikes and wanders around the like natural forest area of like the town that they both live in and so because she's just like an explorative Kind of girly she ends up running into Claudia who's the one who's living in isolation and Claudia is very timid (laughs) and doesn't really know how to socialize and how to like respond to social relations because she's been very isolated her entire life whereas Grace is like super bubbly and outgoing and very extroverted and really wants to be Claudia's friend and wants to like kind of break her out of her shell. In the way that the intimacy of girlhood and of close friendships takes a queer turn, we see Claudia and Grace kind of as they are getting to know each other and developing feelings as best friends, it also kind of have their first love kind of situation and those feelings of love you like a best friend or you know, little gay yeah, and yeah. it's just very sweet because they're young and so they kind of have that like naiveness but also kind of like the world is your oyster type
0: of vibe to them. Yeah. And there's um, a mother daughter relationship in there too right? Because,
1: yeah there there is right, there right, isn't
0: right, right. yeah yeah yeah. Because Claudia sees her mother and like yeah. yeah.
1: We get like bits and pieces of it because it there's a traumatic moment that happened between Claudia and her mother that no one really knows happened. Um, but there are events and moments that trigger Claudia to kind of have these like PTSD like moments. of ang- yeah. yeah, flashbacks and anxieties that Grace doesn't fully understand. And also because they're young, like they also don't know how to navigate having deep trauma <laughs> and how to communicate yeah. that. And but also through Grace's like positivity and naiveness we kind of see her help Claudia navigate that because she doesn't have that same burden and she's also unaware of it in Claudia so she's able to pull Claudia out of herself in moments that otherwise no one else would be able to do. Grace also has a very complicated home life that we see snippets of and so both of these things kind of push them together like grace really wants to escape grace helps her come out of her shell but they're also motivated by both of them trying to escape the situations that they both have well, essentially were born into because they're teenagers and then we just see that and it's just a very sweet movie it's super short it is like it's 78 minutes so it yeah. like keeps a pretty good pace throughout yeah. the film and they're also it's these- like 78 minutes yeah, and so there's just like this these very cute vignettes also throughout the scene, and and it's just, it's a very sweet, sapphic, girlhood mother daughter story. Oh, yeah. A classic, a classic, but, genre, a classic, classic genre, genre of the Lavender Mouse You it's guys true. are familiar with the material. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Directed by also directed by Katie found. So a woman director always love to see it.
0: Slay, cool. So. A book recommendation I have for this episode is Fight Night by Miriam Tev, Toews, T-O-E-W-S. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I know I'm not doing it right. Anyway.
1: That could go many ways. That could be pronounced
0: many ways. Yeah. So Fight Night is, hmm, it is another (laughs) maternal, matriarchal line intergenerational story told from the perspective of a nine-year-old girl who has a complicated relationship with her mom and her grandma, mm-hmm. and they all live in the same Classic. house. And Classic. Basically, because we're in the perspective and in the head of a nine-year-old girl, we have that naivete, right? That perspective. But also, mm. she's quite precocious and... She's always repeating the little things that her grandma says and that her mom says and does. And these little observations and ways of speaking that are particular to, like, her family, right? And she is suspended from school for an indefinite amount of time, basically, because she keeps on fighting these boys. And But, like, it's not because she... It's not because she has like any violent tendencies. It's more so that she wants to like win. It, it's just very casual. It's very chill. Mm-hmm. And both her both her grandma and her mom, very eclectic people, especially her grandma, of course. Grandma mm-hmm. and her are always doing this thing, these things called like lessons, basically. So every day it's like, okay, time to time to do your education because you're not in school, so we're gonna do your educational thing. And then they have these like little projects where they're they say that they're the editors of a magazine that is just their house and it's not really a magazine but is it it's kind of surreal in that way but a lot Mm -hmm. of it is told in like letters to god or like her unknown father or like her it's like and it's just so interesting because it's Uh, very sweet and heartwarming but it is at the end of the day about the relationship that these three women have with each other that is very tender and loving but also fraught Um. at many points of course but the book just feels kind of it's like not much really happens but I mean there's at one point she our our main character the nine-year-old girl goes to another town they live in somewhere in California I don't remember where but they go to another town with her grandma who is like we also see her grandma because she's old she like deals with health issues and not being able to get places and so they're trying to navigate getting her on and off public transportation and try like her antics which are very she just like does these wild things and so we see why our main character this little girl is so precocious and wild and free and bizarre in the way that a lot of little girls are but also because her mom's mom is so fucking weird and so is her mom like they're they they're all very quirky and the way that they talk to each other is very particular to this family dynamic it was just like a real let's see what goodreads says let's do what Goodreads. oh the radio is the audience right i also saw it in the bookstore today and it was also recommended by some of the sellers at the store. Like, it had its own little placard. But... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, no. It's not in California. It's Toronto. So, basically... So, I don't know why I thought it was in California. <laughs> so, this was published in, like, 2021. And it has a 4.08 star rating on Goodreads. It has, like, 7,000 ratings. The... Mm little synopsis on the page says Fight Night is told in the unforgettable voice of Swiv that's the 9-year-old's name a 9-year-old mm-hmm. living in Toronto with her pregnant mother oh yeah her mom's pregnant i forgot and that's that's another thing they keep on referring to the the baby in her mom as gourd like mm-hmm. like the gourd anyway who is raising Swiv while caring for her own elderly, frail, yet extraordinarily lively mother. When Swiv is expelled from school, Grandma takes on the role of teacher and gives her the task of writing to Swiv's absent father about life in the household during the last trimester of the pregnancy. In turn, Swiv gives Grandma an assignment to write a letter to Gord, her unborn grandchild, and Swiv's soon-to-be younger sibling. "'You're a small thing,' Grandma writes to Gord, "'and you must learn to fight. As Swift records her thoughts and observations, fight, night, unspools the pain, love, laughter, and above all, will to live a good life across three generations of women in a close-knit family. But it is Swift's exasperating, wise, and irrepressible grandma who is at the heart of this novel. Someone who knows intimately what it costs to survive in this world, yet has found a way, painfully, joyously, ferociously to love and fight to the end on her own terms. And see, that's that's a pretty good synopsis. I think like. Mm-hmm the themes of like birth and death in those processes is obviously very prescient because her mom's pregnant and her grandma is very old and so like she's dying and she is Swiv is like a nine-year-old girl and she's dealing with all of this. So yeah, it, it feels kind of similar to the themes that we were talking about in discussing Russian doll, but I, you know, it's like very it was really sweet and funny and full of heart sort of read but Mm -hmm. that's my recommendation
1: that's how i feel about my first summer as well so very very similar vibe on the recommendations and everyone should watch russian doll because Mm -hmm. it's so good and welcome to season four everyone maybe russian doll will be the main piece of the main character of this season yeah the main like Evelyn Hugo had it, had it right, run right, right. like normal people. The Divines. Yeah. Each each season has its main <laughs> beginner piece of media that then we reference throughout the season. Right. So maybe this is the Russian Doll season. Yeah. Who knows?
0: Who knows? Keep Who listening knows? to find out. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and you'll hear us in our next episode if you tune in again. Hopefully you do. Please do. Okay. Yeah. Bye.
1: Bye.